when I read the original Japanese for this line, I was shocked at what <laughs> Ted did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, wait. It totally wait, changes I the feel of it. You were under crunch. What? Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. This is episode two of our Final Fantasy VI analysis series. Thank you for joining us. Um, last time we detailed the development history of the game, so today we're going to jump right into the opening section. Um, I, I think there's something that I kind of wanted to go over uh, as so, sort of just like a, a general way that I approach looking at RPGs from the SNES versus the PlayStation 1 or beyond. Um, it's not like this has been any kind of majority voice necessarily, but, um, I've been seeing it a little more recently and I think it's because we're getting older and these games we grew up with seem really, I mean, it used to be more, it was like the NES got this treatment, but now I'm starting yeah. to see SNES games be talked about this way. Yes, of course, of course. And it's, it's weird. It's a weird feeling because we played these games and they were like, the stories were so great and, yes, and, and deep to us, right? Yeah. But I think uh, in comparison to what, I mean, like Xenogears and games like that started <laughs> doing right. on the next generation, some yeah. people might look back at a game like Final Fantasy VI and say, this story is super simple. There's nothing really heady or you know deep about it. It's pretty basic. And I wanted to kind of respond to that in a couple of ways. I think this is something I'll address more and more throughout. Because I, I, I think there is more to this than a, a statement like that uh, can really, you can't really dismiss this game with a statement like that. But there's no doubt that games of this period certainly did not have the depth in terms of writing and characters and uh, storytelling and philosophy that they did shortly after that on the PlayStation 1. And a big part of that was uh, cartridge limitations. And we touched on oh, that yeah. a bit last week with some no. quotes from Kitase and things like that. But <clears throat> I guess the, the one thing I would, I would uh, <clears throat> or maybe I'll just say the way that I look at it, right? Particularly with these JRPGs, which were full of abstractions. It's almost like in every level of it, it's an abstraction. Hmm. <clears throat> um, you, you're not really meant to believe, and I've said this many, many times, that the characters grow up into giants as large as towns and walk around on the world map <laughs> as giant people, right? <laughs> like right. that's not what's actually happening. It's just a way of getting across the idea that you traveled 20 miles from the mountain area of Narsh to the desert of Figaro, Figaro right? right? Now, in real yeah. time, that might have taken you two minutes and you might have fought two or three battles on the way. But the idea is they actually walked really far and yeah. you, know, you encountered enemies and gained experience as you traveled along the way. So it's a way of getting it across with the use of an abstraction. Yeah, um, I love it when you enter battles when you're in that overworld, then it does show you a more scenic view yes. of, of the area as it may have actually looked as they were sure. traversing it, right? And it does end up, uh, those uh, sceneries are always really, really cool, really good looking. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's great. Uh, graphics are a similar thing with, with games back in this time. You know, they used all kinds of different ways to get across an idea of what a character might be feeling or whatever, where you're not really meant to think of it in a literal sense. Um, so uh, I feel almost the same way about dialogue and storytelling in a lot of these Super Nintendo games, mm-hmm. these Super Nintendo RPGs, where they're meant to give you the, the feeling of, you know, um, the feeling of this in-depth drama with these characters with elaborate backstories, but where yeah. they couldn't really put in, put those scenes, as many of those scenes are nearly as much dialogue and we talked about uh, Ted Woolsey, ta- you know, yeah. the, char- the, the character meaning like letters, character limitation on, uh, he, he, he was twice over what he was allowed to put in there character wise. And he had to rewrite it and then rewrite it again and just <laughs> really, really just try to get the idea across in the yeah. text box. Well, that's what Snipe LAN here on uh, the Patreon Discord, he says, uh, the storyline is definitely compressed. I think the word compression, yes. that's a really good word for it. Yeah. Right, because when you compress something, you're kind of, you're getting rid of everything except for the absolutely essential information. Yes. You get rid of all the redundancy and you bring it into something that's smaller. A two-hour conversation ends up being 30 seconds. Yes. But it conveys the idea still. Yes. I think that's exactly what the dialogue of these games was doing. And, and, And that was part of the constraint of not being able to write out, you know. And in a lot of ways, I appreciated how writers at that time went about being able to do that. Whereas when that became unlimited, you could write as much as you want. They started to go really overboard and you would have, you know, uh, a plot twist late in the game where the, the villain would go on for like almost a half an hour to an hour, just like monologuing and monologuing mm-hmm. and just explaining how elaborate it was and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, you know, like, that's that's the other side of the spectrum, I guess. It's, that's too far that way. <laughs> but I feel like these games did a really good job, and and maybe that's why um, you know I, we we have talked a lot in the past about what if you were to uh, you know adapt like a, a Super Nintendo RPG game into like a TV series or something, yeah. and it would be really difficult it would. because. It would. It left a lot up into the player's interpretation, but that was true of the graphics. That was true of yep. music. That was true of all these yeah. different things. In every way. And so, like, you can interpret it in a lot of different ways. And I think that's why a lot of different people, you know, um, kind of have, like, and, and it's, it's kind of, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. But I, I, I challenge people to think about it a little bit more like that. And there's one example I'm going to bring up a little later of how just a small tweak to some of the dialogue can really change how something lands and how something feels. Um, And we're going to take probably a lot of time in this episode talking about translation and localization in particular because Mm. the difference between the Japanese script and Ted Woolsey's script is kind of immense. It's 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 not huge. It's a chasm. He took a lot of liberties. Yeah, and yeah. then the retranslation for like the Game Boy Advance version, which was done by Tom Slattery, I think his name is Slattery, who also did an amazing Final Fantasy IV translation for the for the DS, DS version, yeah. which is 
I mean, it's not close. I don't care who you are. You can argue with me all day. It's so much better than any other version of that script. So I love his work, and I feel like his his work on the Final Fantasy VI Game Boy Advanced version was much better than Ted Woolsey's. Um, so all that being said, um, I, I, I'm also a, a person who's not, uh, I guess, I'm trying to figure out how to put this, like, I, I don't love um, the sentiment that I get from some people who love JRPGs that the more complex a plot is, like, it, it, there's almost an inherent, um, it's almost better in an inherent way. Like, people would say right. the story of Xenogears is, it can never be topped, this level of complexity and this, you know, use of um, metaphor and uh, mm. an allusion to real world philosophy and and uh, science and religion, religion yeah. and um, psychology and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like if it doesn't have that, nothing can you know approach being this good again. Right. And I I've just always been the proponent that like a simple plot can be just as good as a complex one, like if it's executed the right way. And I think that's where Final Fantasy VI games like Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger, for example really shine is that they are a little more simple in that sense, but they're almost flawless in terms of how they execute on mm -hmm. what they're trying to do. See, and when you bring up execution, then that's where, that's where some of the other examples of com complex stories, uh, kind of falter a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot harder to do that. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there for those of you who are like, I'm not a big fan of this game. I didn't think it was that great. Maybe you went back and played Final Fantasy VI after having played something like a Xenogears or a Final Fantasy VII or something like that, and you're like, wait a minute, this is like really basic in comparison. I actually had a similar feeling the first time I went back and played the older ones, because sure. VII was my first. Right. But I hope that at this point we've earned your... Um, trust as far as because if i had a nickel for every time we were going to start a new game and somebody came out and said oh that's been done to death there's nothing left to say about that yes and then <laughs> and like, then whoa where did you find new things to say about that <laughs> yes yeah i hope that you'll trust that that we will be able to bring a, a, a unique perspective on this game to the table so yeah Hopefully you'll stick around for that reason, even if you don't think there's that much to say about Final Fantasy VI, or if you don't think it's that deep of a, of a game or a story. As far as that goes, uh, anything else you want to add nope. to that? Or I'm ready to hop right into the game. Okay, so let's go ahead and do that. Okay. Um, well, should we talk about translation stuff first? Because you said you had a ton of notes on <laughs> I do Jap only the as, Japanese version as they come up. I yeah. began so as I played this game, I began taking notes um, of like, oh, this is a little different. I looked up the Japanese script, and I'm like, kind of following along both sides. And there's actually quite a bit of hiragana, katakana in the Japanese script. There's not as much kanji as you'd expect. Mm. Um, therefore, it's something I can follow a lot better. I'm not so perfect with kanji, but I can I can keep up with this really well. Well, um, that's probably however, because they were expecting younger kids to play. The I think game, that's right? exactly why. Yeah, yes. you don't see as much kanji in whereas Fam um, Super Famicom games. Some of the you know games that we played later, you know, it, that was a little more difficult. Um, but. I, as I go through, I'm just I, I begin thinking like, oh, this is different. This is different. Oh, this is the word they use for this. Oh, like here's a good example: the word magitech. And we mm. I, I bring this up almost every time we play a Japanese game. 
the English words they come up with are way more creative than the Japanese word that was used. Really? They all, the Japanese word is mado. Hmm. Well, maho means magic. It, it, the kanji would be ma, meaning technically like an evil or evil spirit. It references a demon of some sort. And then ho, which means like a law. So the, the demonic w- law. But then ma do, do is more like a way or a path, right? Mm. So it's the path of the evil demon. <laughs> um, <laughs> either way, it means magic in a similar vein. It's not that different of a word. It's just magic. And then, but then when they translate it to English, they never just use the plain word. They always uh. go, oh, well, like a shade or a oh, magitech, right? And I love the word magitech. Yeah. I wish... It was something similar <laughs> in the Japanese, but it's not. Mm. Um, and their use of the different words like esper. Oh, We've got this sure. word esper, really cool word. Um, I'd have to look up the Japanese word real quick because it just means basically, oh, genju. So genju, genju. means a mythical creature or a phantom beast. Mm. A genju, it's, it's not like esper. <laughs> it's anyways. Um, there's some really interesting stuff with the Japanese, but the, the I guess the bottom line is that Ted Woolsey was very creative in the way he translated this Japanese. Mm-hmm. In some ways, really cool, to great effect. In other ways, um, kind of makes the story really hard to understand. Like, Kefka is so different in the Japanese versus the English. <laughs> so different. And a lot of characters, like Locke. Locke is actually quite different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, point being, I kind of had to take a step back and stop analyzing every line of dialogue uh, because it's just too different. Um, the Japanese version of this game is almost a completely different game and I kind of I will bring it up when I think it's a really big deal other than that just know that nothing that is said in the English is all that close to what was said in the Japanese almost every single time yeah I just want to also reiterate this because we kind of touched on this last time this is not meant to like knock Ted Woolsey per no se. he had a hard job man yeah like um like we said his his first translation of the game was probably something much closer to what the Japanese version was, but they're like, yeah, you have yeah. two times too much dialogue. It, it couldn't here. fit on the cartridge. It, it just won't couldn't fit. fit. You have to cut yeah. it in half. Right, not his fault. So, you know, no. what are you going to do? Like, you, you can't follow it. You you have to just try to get at the essence of it. And he he did the best he could in 30 days, by the way, 30 days, 1,300 pages in 30 days. So... You know, this is by no means us saying he's a bad translator or anything like that. Um, That's just the state that English localization was in at the time. Uh, You know, we talk about Richard Honeywood, who came in and kind of like set a new standard for how Square would do localizations after Xenogears because of how horrible that experience was for (laughs) him. So we weren't even up to that point yet where he was, you know, working for the company. So, but it is to say that... The English versions of these games, uh, as far as dialogue and, and, and the words, the, the, the pen to the paper, you know, <laughs> process, yeah. um, it, it certainly doesn't, uh, it, it leaves a little bit to be desired for the original Super NES versions. Um, I know this was true for you too, but it was definitely true for me. The first time I played Final Fantasy IV, the Super Nintendo mm. version, I was like... <laughs> That's the only one I've played. I have not played the DS version yet. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah. I just didn't think it was that great. Just kind of underwhelmed. It was just like an underwhelming story. I didn't. It, it didn't really seem to hit me with much impact. Hmm. I play the same game again. Tech. I mean, it's a DS version, but that script is so much better at conveying the tone that that game is going for, which yeah. you can hear and feel in the music, and mm. and you know, in in sort of the content that it's tackling. Um, but on top of that, it just sounds more appropriate for the setting. It it reads much more beautifully. It like the words have way more impact to them, and uh, that that is also probably true of the Japanese version. I would assume of Final Fantasy VI versus versus Ted Woolsey's Final mm -hmm. Fantasy VI translation. Yeah. Now, Tom Slatter, who who did the translation of Final Fantasy 4 I'm talking about for the DS version also did the version of Final Fantasy 6 uh, for the Game Boy Advance mm -hmm. and that's the version I'm I'm going to be referencing when okay. we're talking we're taking quotes from the game and things like that I think it's um, not only far more accurate but just for in terms of like what was said and being closer to uh, or more faithful to the Japanese script but it also much more um, accurately gets across the tone and um, it takes out some of the, what are called Woolsey, what has become known as Woolseyisms. Woolseyisms. <laughs> um, where he would do a lot of pop culture references. Yeah, I've noticed a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, and like that fits when you're doing Super Mario RPG. Oh, sure. I'm not sure it fits so well in Final Fantasy VI, but um, in any case, yeah. um, there's, I was, I was kind of, you, you were looking at the Japanese, which I can't do, but I was looking at a lot of the differences between the Super Nintendo, the Game Boy Advance, and uh, several fan translations oh, as well. Okay, okay. And um, it was oh, cool. a, it actually really surprised me, not just like because I didn't really know this beforehand, but I just I just had this feeling about Ted Woolsey, where it's like he he makes the game feel a little lighter, a little oh, sillier, yes, yes, yes a yes. little less. I don't know, serious. Yeah. But like clearly yeah. from like the color palette, the music, the, yeah. this game's supposed to be a little darker than say Final Fantasy V was. But was did was he clued into that? Did, could he hear the music? I, I would assume did so. Did he but see the visuals? I just don't know how seriously he took right. video games in general. I, I can't speak for him. I'm not saying he didn't. I just don't know. But um, like I have an article pulled up here, and there's a couple things I want to read from this. The the guy who who wrote this article, his name is Clyde Mandelin. Um, he's also uh, he works in localization, um, and so here's his kind of summary of his article. He says we've looked at four different translations of Final Fantasy VI in great detail, and compared each one with the original Japanese script. Each version has its own pros and cons in terms of gameplay presentation, content differences, and so on. But in terms of translation only, I feel that the Game Boy Advance translation of Final Fantasy VI is unquestionably the best translation out of all of them by far. Hmm. For all the full details behind this conclusion, check out you know another link he has here. Um, so here's what he says about the Super NES. I'm just going to leave it at this. We're not going to do the whole article, but just what his feelings on the Super NES version. This was the first English translation of Final Fantasy VI. It was released in 1994, when serious game localization was still in its early stages. I loved the game as a youngster, and I'm sure its translation helped push me toward becoming a professional translator years later. So it's got an important place in my heart. 
Going into this project, I knew the Super NES translation had some flaws and mistranslations. I mean, on top of um, the obvious things, like the names of items and names of people, which are wrong, like tonic instead of potion, hmm. or hmm. Um, tincture instead of ether. Tincture. And like, just it's weird because it has different names for all these common items yeah. that the series has in all the other games in English. So yeah. um, it's unique in that way. But um, he goes on to say, I fully enjoyed it without issue at the time, had many good memories of it. So I always assumed these translation issues were minor in the grand scope of things. I was wrong. It turns out the Super NES translation has many deeper problems than I think most fans realize. It has major mistranslations and issues right from the start and doesn't let up until the game is over. Here are a few quick examples. So um, we'll probably have to put these on the screen for people. Um, an yeah. example of the, I'll send this link so that you, know, you can have the photos and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so we have the scene here where um, Locke meets the the older guy who helped Tara. Like he woke, she woke up in the bed, and he had taken the crown off of her right and yeah, sent her on her man. way. Um, so he says, "Imperial troops are pursuing her even as we speak." And what he notes underneath this is the Super NES translation makes major story mistakes right off the bat and keeps on going at that level. Um, here we have Kefka saying, "Fire, fire, heh, heh." It's it's a very specific place where he puts that comma the hit <laughs> mm. it's it's from beavis and butthead it's it's a direct <laughs> quote from beavis and butthead <laughs> that's so so ted woolsey has kefka uttering a line as like a like like a beavis and butthead you know character <laughs> would do that um so there's tons of pop culture references of uh, you know from the three stooges from citizen kane the price is right mm. beavis and butthead and more um it says entire story threads and character arcs are misinterpreted and mistranslated. Locke's motivation and his backstory, which I won't put on the screen yet, right. are a prime example, but there are many more too. So we'll probably have to bring that up later at that point. Um, the, uh, here's, here's one that we'll also have to bring up later about espers though, you know, like in terms of yeah. world building and, and the nature of espers and stuff like that. The world building is full of translation mistakes, including the nature of espers, what the esper world is, how Terra came about and all that, which is a significant portion of the game story. Um, then you have another one here again, uh, shocking moments. So let's say like a big twist later in the story, completely mishandled, um, in terms of like, what the emperor is saying here. It's just like totally wrong. Hmm. Now, I didn't realize a, a lot of this either, um, but going through it this week and, and watching the two different versions, it's like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can play the Super Nintendo version of this <laughs> that's game what, that's what I'm anymore. <laughs> um, now, huh. you can patch um, the Game Boy Advance translation into the Super Nintendo version. A lot of people do it that way because oh, the one con of the Game Boy Advance version is that the music is is like really compressed. It sounds pretty bad. Oh, darn. So if you want that Super Nintendo beautiful sound, hmm. but you want the script, there are ways to do that. So okay. I'll let everybody else figure out how they go about making that happen. But I just wanted, I, I wanted to bring that up. I'm going to be using the text from the Game Boy Advance version to really analyze the game mostly. Okay. Um, I'm not going to do too much of this, like jumping back and forth and comparing. Uh, I'll share a couple examples from the, the plot, from the dialogue I took today 
for today's episode. But I'll just kind of leave it at that and say, like, trust me, I feel like the, the script of the Game Boy Advance is much stronger. Um, and, uh, yeah, outside of that, I think that's about all I wanted to talk about in regards to that. But the, okay. all of these things can really change how certain story beats, shocking moments, moments that are meant to be dramatic but end up well, sounding silly, how they <sighs> land. And depending okay. on which version you played, like, that may have, have affected, like, how you felt about the story overall, right? Hmm. So those are all things to keep in mind for those of you who are doubtful that we can pull anything really interesting <laughs> or philosophical or deep or, uh, I don't know, meaningful to talk about here. But uh, let's just say maybe that's the vocal minority I was hearing throughout this week and preparing to respond to. But I think the vast majority of people who played Final Fantasy VI think it's one of the greatest games of all time. So, um, okay. I'm going to let you uh, take off here because All right. um, I know that you really enjoy intros and openings and, and breaking them down. And so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. But uh, just mm -hmm. one last thing. Um, one of the very first things that Ted Woolsey got wrong was the name of a character here at the beginning. It's uh, Biggs and Wedge. Or it's supposed to be a Star, <laughs> Star Wars yeah. reference, which I'm complaining about pop culture references, right? <laughs> and uh, that was a very purposeful Star Wars reference. From Japan. That yeah. Ted Woolsey somehow didn't seem to get. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even though that's like totally his thing. And he, he named the character Vix instead of Biggs. So um, anyways, his name's supposed to be Biggs. All right. So the beginning of games is incredibly important. We've talked about this. It's the hook. It's the, the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first page of the first chapter of, of a, a good book, you know. It's extremely important. So I love picking this stuff apart. I love really diving into just exactly how the game chooses to present itself to us um, in a way the beginning of a game is the creation of the world of the game, right? And so as you read the very, or as you watch or play the very beginning of a game, this is what it's telling you what the game is. It's, it's creating the world for you to kind of uh, absorb into your mind that's going to inform the, the rest of your playthrough. So at the very beginning of this game, we have darkness. Some games dip to light, some games fade to black, right? So you hit start and everything goes black. Then we see a moonlit night, though we don't see the moon, only the hint of it through the way the clouds are lit. But we know it's a storm. There's lightning flashing from the clouds. As we descend below the horizon into the clouds, the screen grows even darker. The lightning illuminates the shape of the clouds, revealing what lies in the veiled darkness. Without the lightning, everything would be black. A solo organ begins to play. The music takes six steps up to the seventh measure, where the voices are introduced, like kind of like a choir, right? But you get those six steps, and each step up on the scale, um, the previous note continues to be sustained. It's held throughout, right? Mm -hmm. So the music is very ominous. It's a pipe organ. But it reminds me a lot of the track, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Right? So we've got that sound. Of course, this is also the name of one of Nietzsche's famous books. 
There will be some exploration of Nietzsche's ideas later on in the game, so I don't think this was just coincidental. Sure. Right? The music here is very dissonant, though, and lacks the hopeful feeling that 2001 A Space Odyssey, that that track gives. It leaves one with a hopeless, dare I say, nihilistic feeling right out of the gate, especially when paired with the darkness of the storm that we find ourselves surrounded by visually. Everything is dark. It is all darkness, nothingness, and the only light that we see to latch onto as a beacon of hope is the occasional lightning bolt, which does little to assuage our discomfort. As the music hits its climax, the title, Final Fantasy III, appears on the screen, each letter filled with fire. The fiery letters appear foreboding against a backdrop of a dark and stormy night. The music then quickly changes to a harp or other similar sounding stringed instrument, right? The camera continues to move further and further down. The descent is long and dark. It's kind of crazy how long the camera takes before it finally settles, right? Uh, But the music gives more of a feeling of wonder and mystery. Though, as it's, uh, the music also seems somewhat frantic and distressed, as if it's in a hurry to get someplace. As the camera finally settles on the ground, the music begins to slow and settle as well. Then we see a canyon, at the bottom of which appears to be a series of isolated fires, like torchlight, signifying that there's a town there. Is it on fire? Hard to say. There is a, an, her, an hermetic principle that probably the most famous one that most people are familiar with, which says, as above, so below, Mm, right? mm -hmm. So the raging storm above is telling us something about the village down below. A storm is coming, a massive, massive storm. And to the extent that that town is a peaceful one, it likely won't be for long. The image fades and a bell begins to ring, a large bell ringing slowly, So bells are a measure of time. Now, this is part of the song, right, that plays, and it's one of the famous songs of the game. But bells are a measure of time. Bells are almost universal in their meaning. They represent a beginning and an ending. They're used to signify time, such as the Joya no Kane in Japan, where a bell is rung 108 times on New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. That's like a thing that they've been doing for a really long time. That number 108 happened in... um, on Sunday too, I asked a, a kid to guess the age of somebody who was next to me, and the kid said, "Um, 108." <laughs> Seriously, and the girl made a joke, and she's like 20. She goes, uh, "I'm actually 109," oh, but no. then I played this game. <laughs> I'm like 108. What are the freaking odds? Okay, great. Anyways, um, this dish came up in my research. Uh, bells also have an almost universal use in religious ceremonies all throughout the world. They can ward off evil spirits, invite good ones, and signify the coming of dawn or dusk. Mm-hmm. The use of bells in this song gives me the impression that we're seeing the end of something, right? That a bell is, you know, ringing out for whom the, the setting toll. sun. I'm going to get into that. <laughs> I am going to get into that because just like Thus Big Zarathustra, yeah. I think this song might actually be referencing that exact idea. Mm-hmm. It's like the bell that rings at a funeral. The foreboding bells that the bells give here is um, that in many societies from east to west, the ringing of a bell is a signifier to begin praying, right? This is yeah. Catholic churches, Muslim mosques, like this is what happens. The bell rings, 
and that's that is the expectation, right? So when we see a town that is about to be destroyed and a bell begins to ring, the only thought that I have for them is say your prayers because you're about to die, mm-hmm. right? So this, of course, is strengthened in my mind by the fact that the bells ringing at this point sound just like the song I used to listen to in high school by Metallica yep. called For Whom the for Bell Tolls. The <laughs> it's a killer, killer song, right? Yep. But get a load of this. I've looked into the background of that song now. So the bell sound is eerily reminiscent of that song. It's like the same tone, the same kind of pacing between bell rings. Like I feel like, and Nobuo Uematsu was a yeah. fan of rock and oh, roll for music, for sure right? he was. Yeah. You know what's funny <laughs> about this is I played this game around the time that we were all messing around in um, RPG Maker. Oh, yeah, right? that's right, yeah. And uh, we would use uh, um, a, like music, MIDI a music MIDI tracks. processing thing. Uh, it was yeah, a software yeah. called Melody Assistant. That's to, right, yeah, To that write cool. our own music that we could yeah. then put into the games. And I remember that it's both FF7 and FF6. And actually, even um, Seiken Densetsu 3, uh, as well, they have that specific bell sort of chiming um, sound effect. Like a preset, yeah. Yeah, that they would use in music for ominous mm, sort of like tones. Yeah. And I remember making For Whom the Bells Toll, yeah. trying to like mimic that, but like in Melody <laughs> Assistant to use for a scene in a game that I was making, an RPG maker. So that tone, That's funny. I totally made the same connection even same back connection, then to yeah. Metallica was that specific like bell ringing tone. It sounded really similar. It sounds just exactly the same. So that song, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is named after a book of the same name by Ernest Hemingway. The book, For Whom the Bell Tolls, is interestingly enough based on the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s. Isn't that great? Wow. <laughs> uh, so uh, during which the movie Pan's Labyrinth is set, which is a film that we analyzed we, for yeah, Patreon. We just did it. <laughs> just last month, right? So that's great. So Hemingway's book follows an insurgent who is fighting as a rebel against an authoritarian regime in mm, Spain. Wow. There will be a parallel to this throughout Final Fantasy VI, yep. I think. Yep. So in the book, Hemingway makes mention of a poem from the early like 17th century, I think. Um, it reads, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Mm. That's a beautiful quote. Um, Of course, this is a reference to the funeral toll practice that is still in use today. It's the sound of a single tenor bell ringing slowly with a significant gap between strikes. It's used to mark the death of a person at a funeral or a burial service. In Final Fantasy VI, the bells are ringing and the toll is rising. So do you want to, um, I know, I'm sure you wrote this down, but the prologue. Yeah, so I took down the version from the advance. Yeah, please Game read Boy that advanced one. <laughs> I'm curious to the see The ancient how it is. war of the Magi, when its flames last receded, only the charred husk of a world remained. Even the power of magic was lost. In the thousand years that followed, iron, gunpowder, and steam engines took the place of magic, and life slowly returned to the barren land. Yet there now stands one who would reawaken the magic of ages past and use its dread power as a means by which to conquer the world. Could anyone truly be foolish enough to repeat that mistake? Now, I I have questions here. Um, And I wrote down here, let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. Magic is bad. No magic, please. Just leave us to our machines and coal and gunpowder and technology. <laughs> Magic only leads to death and destruction. Uh, yeah, Have I got this straight? It seems that at least um, in the past, uh, the ancients, they 
they wielded it to such a degree. Well, let's just say there's probably degrees of power with magic, yeah, right? Yeah. That went up to a certain point of destruction that was atomic bomb level kind right. of thing, right? So I mentioned earlier that the word, the Japanese word for magic, it has somewhat of a demonic connotation, right? Yeah, it kind sure. of applies a little bit towards, uh, slants a little towards the evil side. And of course, you know, they can use it however they want to in a lot of their stuff. It doesn't always mean that. But that's kind of the context that most people who hear that word would kind of think of, at least in the Japanese. That's an interesting um, point because yeah. that's not true in English. Magic is much, kind no. of seen as this power that goes either way. It's sort of like there's a good side and there's a bad side to magic yeah. almost in every case I can think exactly. of. Exactly. And there is that in Japan, but not as much. Um, in in the West, there are some magic traditions that are all about calling upon angels to do good yeah, things. Yeah, right. But then there's also the ancient magic traditions that call upon the devils to do bad things, right? right. And so there's kind of like a split. There's like a both sides thing there. Mm. Um, with Japan, you have more or less, You, I think you have a greater number of ambivalent spirits in Japan mm. that's like, could be good, could be bad. Don't know. Yeah. But let's, you know, team up and see what happens, right? Now Christianity would say, well, that's a demon, right? Yeah. But but in Japan it's like, no, no, it can be it can be both, right? It mm. doesn't have to be only good or only bad. Um so in Japan there is a little bit of nuance there. But I think it's fascinating. I like the difference in translation from what you just read. Because what it says in the Super NES is uh the the force known as magic. It just says magic. Mm. But what this translation said, the ancient magic, it's referencing a specific kind of magic. Right. Whereas in FF6, it's just like magic in general. Magic bad, technology good, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That's really good for me to hear. So I really yeah. like that. As we see the line about some some people wish to enslave the world by reviving magic, it shows a palace that we see a little bit later on. Yes. See, it's Gestalt's kind of place or wherever Kefka does his stuff, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. we see that scene, um, but it's very industrial and it's very smokestacks and there's pollution and the sunset looks weird and yep. it looks very industrial. Yeah. So while they're saying magic isn't good because we have technology and it's very good, um, and peaceful. <laughs> um, they're showing us just like a, a kind of a dystopian environment that just doesn't look very appealing. It's yeah. just like, ugh, what's that? Like, what, what's this industrial smokestack pollution machine in the background here? Um, so I feel like there's a little bit of like dissonance there between what they're saying and what they're showing. Where it's like, you know what, I'll bet you that there is a good side to this magic too. I don't know. But yeah. we'll see, uh, you know, exactly where that goes. Yeah. I think, I mean... I know that you're sort of, um, I don't know what the term is, not not oversimplifying. That's not the word I'm looking for. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. With your not spoiling? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, but but I, I guess I just want to point out, just in, in anticipation of maybe yeah. some comments, um, that I'm, I'm not sure it's trying to say the gunpowder and the steam engines and the iron are good necessarily, just that they replaced magic. So right. like... Magic went away and there was this period of kind of like darkness and maybe regression in human civilization. Mm -hmm. And then the iron and the gunpowder and the steam engines came around and sort of returned humanity to a similar maybe level of civilization as before. But, um, gotcha. but now Gestahl is trying to, you know, reawaken that magic that had destroyed the world before. Anyway. Just wanted okay. to make that note. Um, so I'm, we've got the Magitech armor people showing up now. Yeah. So I, I didn't mention this yet, but this, oh, there's actually two things. 
<laughs> so have you seen the intro of the PlayStation 1 version of Final Fantasy VI? Um, I think I have a long time ago, but not, yeah. not recently. So when they released Final Fantasy, I think it was Anthology. Anyways, hmm. after FF7 came out, they kind of went back and ported right. Final Fantasy IV, V. Um, I, I believe four and five were together. Anyway, Chrono Trigger was thrown into one. There was two different hmm. ones. There was two different ones. There was an anthology, and then there was a something else. Okay. And FF6, FF4, FF5, and Chrono Trigger were all kind of... Um, localized at that time um in any case they have these oh no it's final fantasy one two one and two and then something else anyways <laughs> i can't believe i am not thinking of like what they're titled right now or which ones came with what i i didn't play these games on the i didn't oh. play the playstation versions yeah, anyways they were trying to get out all of the final fantasy games into the west after the huge success of final fantasy 7 um the only one that didn't really make it was three so hmm. anyways point is they created these little like cgi intros for these games okay, okay. um and so final fantasy 6 is pretty interesting because um it kind of like interprets Amano's art as literally as you can onto a 3D model. Oh, really? So like, you know, when, when Terra, like the way Terra looks, the way Celeste looks, the way the characters look are very Amano looking. Hmm. Um, when she gets into the Magitech armor, it's the Amano version of the Magitech armor, not the one that you see in the game. Hmm. So it's pretty cool for that reason. Um, in terms of like how I feel it works as like, I, I like it better that you just start the game and it's just these ominous clouds with that like organ music and then it just yeah. pans down yeah. and it just like goes right into that. Um, so I, I prefer that. The, yeah, well, oh, man. it's not change it. It's still in the game. It's okay. just that you, this little intro cinematic will play hmm. and you kind of see... Terra and Biggs and Wedge getting into a Magitek armor. You see like Kefka's face and he's sort of like cackling and seeing them off. Uh, and it's okay, like they're okay. getting in and moving on their way to Marsh. Okay. And then it, and then it moves into the scene where it pulls down on the ledge and they walk up and they say, oh, there's the city in the distance kind hmm. of thing. Okay, okay. Um, I mean, it's it's cool. It's I think it's really cool to see. I, I wish in, let's say, a remake of Final Fantasy One not Strangers of Paradise, but like a, a, a one that was trying to be more true to like what the original <laughs> game was, that right. they would try a 3D game in the modern era that like tried to more literally sort of interpret Amano's art. I think that could be really cool. And this is something that kind of had that look, but like, you know, primitive 1999 CG kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? But um, it's kind of cool. Uh, definitely worth seeing. They, they kind of do um, like a montage of a few scenes from the game. So the opera scene... And a oh, couple cool. of other things. And then they go into Terra with the slave crown and uh, Biggs and Wedge and they're walking and they get inside of the the Magitek armor and then they kind of walk out the door. And it, mm. there's, But the, the, it, kind of what you're talking about, about like the darkness of like the title reveal and then how it sort of pans down and you just have the lightning and stuff. Yeah. The end of that scene ends with like a door opening up and it's very blinding white light. Mm. And um, I don't know, I just don't think it cuts too well into kind of okay. how the game starts out huh. with the title screen before. So Interesting. I, I, if I were doing a television series of Final Fantasy VI, I would not 
include that scene. I would just cut straight to where it starts off, just the dark clouds and yeah, the lightning yeah. and just go from there. But it is still kind of cool to see if you haven't seen it. So Okay, well, I did not see that. Yeah, and then uh, the other thing I was going to say was that this was, at the time, the first time that the reoccurring gag characters Biggs and Wedge appeared in Final Fantasy. So they would kind of go on to be reoccurring characters, like they're part yeah. of the, the Avalanche team in Final Fantasy VII, um, they're the, the, uh, you know, the physical comedy soldiers that you battle at the early on in final fantasy eight and they kind of reoccurring, you fight them yeah, a couple different yeah. times. Um, yeah, so they, they kind of had them as reoccurring characters after this. I think they retconned, uh, the characters that talk with Cecil in the very, very beginning of final fantasy four. Mm. This is in the after years. So in a sequel that came many years later, <laughs> they retconned those characters to be Biggs and wedge, but. Um, originally, this was the first time that that Star Wars pop culture reference appeared, and it would kind of become a thing for a little while after that. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, okay. We see those two in their little match tech suits, looking down at Narsh in the distance. Yeah. By the way, the Japanese is na narushe. 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 Mm. So, I don't know. You can call it Narsh if you want. I'm just pointing <laughs> this out for everyone. Who cares? Uh, Narshe is how they would say it. So Narshe, Narshi, Narshe, Narshe. Yeah. Mm. Narsh. Um, they're kind of looking over the edge. You know, there's the yeah. town in the distance, right? Um, and yeah. uh, the I think what Final Fantasy VI does really well in kind of the entire section we're going to be talking about today, it's a pretty it's a pretty short amount of time in gameplay terms. I think. You can get to playing at pretty like a leisurely speed. You can get up to where we're going to end today in the Returners hideout in like less than an hour and a half. Mm, okay. So it's like pretty quick, right? Uh, in gameplay terms, and they do such a good job of establishing so many like of the important things you need to understand to understand the stakes, to understand who these characters are. Um, so this first scene is really set out to show us. There's this girl named Tara, one of our main characters, and she's really scary. She's really right. powerful and really scary. And yeah. one of them is expressing that like, um, is this, is this like, okay? <laughs> like, oh, should we be worried? She, she, I think the, the, the way they term it in the original translation, yeah. she fried 50 of our Magitech armors in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she's very powerful. And he's like, nope, with that slave crown on her head, she'll follow order. She'll do what we tell her right, to do. So this right, so this is how they introduce the concept of the slave crown just in general. Yeah. So she doesn't have free will while she's wearing this slave crown. She's basically <clears throat> made to do what she's doing. So yeah. we have a girl who is really a really powerful witch or sorceress. I think they use the term witch in the original. Um, and... Uh, yeah, like she's being controlled and they're taking her here because she's going to do the damage that you were alluding to that they're sort of um yeah, the ominous. Yeah, setting up to here, right? Like yeah. the for whom the bells toll, this girl is coming to uh, to reap to reap <laughs> the havoc yes, on she this is town, the one. right? And that that's what makes it kind of difficult. Well, I'm going to get into this uh soon. I want to talk a little bit first about the it's a nice touch that just the wind is blowing. There's no music. Yes, there's right? no music. Yeah. So you're sitting there, the wind is blowing. That's all that we hear. And these people are plotting to attack the town 
but we get no music, only the wind blowing. So this is actually a really important symbol in uh, Jap- Japan because Fujin and Raijin, well, you'll know those mm, names, but yep. Fujin and Raijin in Japan represent the wind and thunder gods, the most respected deities in Japan. We, get, we got to experience the foreboding of Raijin in the intro sequence, and now we're hearing the howling winds of Fujin, symbolizing the brewing of a storm and prophesying the unleashing of the power of the gods upon the land. You may remember the names Fujin and Raijin from our Final Fantasy VIII podcast. Mm. Uh, Shinto mythology is where these names originate from. Yeah. <clears throat> but they call, so Biggs and Wedge call Terra a sorceress? Um, they call her a sorceress. Um, in Japanese, this often references evil magic. It's the mado. It's just the mado word, like uh, mahotsukai or something like that. Um, so it can mean both, but traditionally it's referencing evil magic. So um, the, the reference to ter- the slave crown on Terra's head is very interesting to me. because So they say she has no conscious thought and thus no free will. Uh, we see a bit of a mixture here with the fact that this is a crown, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So in one aspect, she's royalty being crowned and all. But on the other hand, she's a slave due to the nature of the crown. Yeah. Um, the, and the, the coolest thing, this has to do with what you were just talking about. We got the foreboding scene, right? And then we've got these characters and then they're going to move towards it. And they're going to go destroy. Terra is going to go like cause death and destruction, right? Terra's theme is what's playing yep. during this intro credit scene, yep. right? It's a rather melancholic song with snare drums that sound a bit like marching off to war. You've got that snare, yeah. that like marching snare going on. So we as the player may not want to kill anyone in this town. We know what's happening, right? We know there's a storm brewing and we're going to go kill some people and we're the ones that are going to do it and we're just marching off. Like I almost feel like this is part of why this scene is so iconic. It's yeah. not just that, wow, this is sick. This looks cool. Look at these guys <laughs> marching. It's like, and it's a long scene. Mm-hmm. You get like two minutes at least of just like, boom, slowly, just as the camera was very, it took its time moving through that storm yeah. to show us Narsh. Now it's really taking its time to show these people visit destruction upon the city, yeah. right? Now you would assume they're going to blow up the whole city. That's not exactly what happens, but you know. Close enough. They kill a lot of people and some good dogs too, by the way. It's very, very sad. Um, but as they're marching there, we can't stop it. This is once again, you've, get the, you've got the dichotomy of like, oh, Tara's just wearing a slave crown. She's going to do whatever we tell her to do. And, and then also the player who is mm. like, I don't want to just go kill a whole bunch of people in a town. But here I am and we're in Tara's shoes, right? So we're along for the ride. And as Tara is a slave to the crown, we are the ones who are actually going to, we're controlling her. Yeah. And we're the ones who are actually going to do the act of killing right. these people in this town. Yeah. So I feel like that's at least in part why this scene is so iconic, right? Yeah. It's not just that it looks cool. There's a whole, there's a whole lot more kind of leading into it. Um, and once again, this is an attack and we're not the good guys. Yeah. And yeah, and you know, we talked, we have talked a lot about, you know, what makes a great hook, what makes a good intro. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in terms of intros or, or like when, when you use an opening credits sequence as like, sort of like the beginning of your game, uh, there's two that really stick out to me. This is one. And then of course, Vagrant Story, the way it uses the slams to black with like the credits as it's going through its intro. Um, it's just really creative kind of the way that they did this. Because uh, they're they're setting a tone. It's, it's kind of all it's all here to set a tone. It's like giving yeah, you yeah, that yeah. ominous feeling, 
And they link, like you said, they linger on it for a long time. It takes time. a long time, yeah. Right? And it's like the perfect way to do a, a, a title, you know, um, yeah. for the beginning of the story. Opening credits, yeah. Um, opening credits kind of thing. Uh, but the, you're kind of engaged the whole time, even though they're just walking straight and, and it's just sort of slowly revealing like the mode seven, you know, like over the hill yeah. kind of thing yeah. as it's sort of uh, slowly, they're making their way towards the town. But um, I don't know, like there, there's not a single time I've played the game where I've wanted to skip that section. The use of the music, hmm. the animation on the Magitek armor, yeah. the snow, like just the, the, the composition of that shot, the way it looks, when it all comes together, it's like nothing's really happening other than you're seeing the names of the people who made the game. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but it feels really like you're, you're being drawn in even still. Yes. Um, and it's pretty amazing that it pulls that off uh, yeah. just, just with the use of the art and the music. Um, and of course, kind of just like the dark tone of it all, which was so yeah. different from FF5, like the way FF5 feels. FF5 is very light. Um, yeah, yeah. The music's very light. It's very like, um, like we're going to go on like an a adventure. Feel good right? adventure feel yeah, to it. Yeah. And this is so different from that. Mm. Um, this is very, like you say, melancholic, dramatic, yeah. serious, dark. The in colors comparison. too. The colors. Everything yeah. just seems. Uh, the colors are muted, right? Everything's a little desaturated. Yeah. You know, it's it's not as bright and cheerful. Yeah. It's it's just it's really 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 well done. Um, really well executed. Even though, like on paper, I guess, or if you're thinking about it in a general sense, not much happens in this intro. Yet mm, it's considered yeah. to be one of the better intros in the series or maybe even one of the better intros in, in gaming. Yeah. Um, and you're really just kind of watching some text on the screen as some people are walking through the snow. But it's just, I don't know, it's, again, this is like a, 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 a really a point about execution, right? And how this game executes so masterfully um, and, and it brings like all of its parts together into a whole that just like creates a feeling in you where it's just like you're drawn into that like almost immediately. Um, so I can't give them enough praise for how they handled this scene. It's great. Oh, me neither. Um, okay. I have a quick question here because okay. my next note, I want to make sure that this is right first. Ah, dang it. They missed it. They missed something. Okay. 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 I have this note here, right? So... Biggs and Wedge, they're just like, you know, <laughs> their first like words that they say once we get to Narsh is, let's put her on point. No sense in taking any risks. Right. Oh, right. So they're like, uh, going to use the slave girl as a human shield, <laughs> which once again, just reinforces that, yeah, these aren't the good guys who yeah. we're controlling, but it would have been, I don't know why in battle schema, they couldn't have had Terra be moved forward. Oh, and the others like move in backward. the front row and they're exactly. in the back row. Yeah. Um, that would have been a really good way to merge the plot, uh, the, the storytelling, just the dialogue yeah. with the actual gameplay. That, right. Yeah, that would have been um, smart. But instead you see Terra is not taking point in the battles. And uh, because if you're further up, I think you'll take more damage. You'll deal more yes, damage. Yes. But, and that would have really, anyways, I, missed. I, I agree. Missed, missed, missed opportunity. That would have been uh, smart, a way to work in. Yeah. Like uh, some of how the gameplay works with the story. Yeah. Missed opportunity. Yeah. But still. So yeah, I just wrote here like nice guys, real brave, you know, use the slave girl <laughs> as a shield. Uh, but we're only forced, you know, we're forced to go along with it for now. Um, yeah, so basically a bunch of the, 
warriors, guards, whatever you want to call it, from Narsh come out to try to defend the town yep. as you're marching through. You're heading into the mines, um, and you're just kind of like slaying these guys. The Magitek yeah. are really powerful. Like the, it's basically one yes, hit kill yeah. on anything they basically hit, everything, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but and and I don't know if people would have picked up on this right away. They they, they point this out more explicitly a little bit later, but. Tara is the only one who has the ability, you know, like in your your little menu uh, pull down where you have mm -hmm. attack and items. She's the only one that has the magic, magic ability. Yeah. So yeah. the other guys can't use magic. She's the only one who can. So she has right now, I think, fire and cure are the two spells she's got. But um, she is the only one able to use magic. Now, they use Magitek armor, which seems to, like the, the, the machines seem to be infused with some magical abilities, yeah. but the dudes themselves are not using magic. They're just pushing buttons in their little machine and then it does it. Yeah. So something interesting to point out. She's the only one who can use magic herself. Um, and once again, in the town, all we can hear is the fierce wind blowing. And you yeah. also see it too, as the, the smoke rises out of the chimneys, it goes immediately sideways, right? It's just... Yeah. So in the visual and audio, we're, the we're wind. yeah, yeah it, it just feels very, very windy, right? Yeah. There's a lot of attention to detail in this game, sprite art, which is oh, so big, good. huge, absolutely. You know, part of the reason why it's considered one of the best games of all time in terms of uh, sprite art, pixel sprite art. Um, but yeah, there's so much detail in everything; it's it's incredible. Um, so they fight their way up into the mines. Um, they're, they're attacked there. And then one of the guards sends out a monster, uh, to fight us. Was this that snail? Thing? It was called Welk in the original Woolsey translation. It was renamed, um, Emir in later translations. Oh, Emir is Norse mythology. Yeah. The, the giant. It doesn't, this is, <laughs> this is okay. So this is common of final fantasy games, but <laughs> they use the name, but then yeah, they use like a the lot of Greek and Norse names yeah that the designs look nothing like what they were based on at all. <laughs> no, Emir was the giant that the world, the earth is made out of basically. Yeah, yeah, the earth right. is made out of the giant Emir, but like, this is a big snail. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, I can't remember which design it was that Amano did for a monster. I don't remember if it was Bahamut or if it was uh, oh. a behemoth, but he was mm -hmm. like, uh, he, he did his design, whether it was the dragon or the beast or whatever. And then, you know, he looks up, uh, there's actually a quote, this is going to go into the Final Fantasy retrospective at some point, but there was a quote, or he looked, he finally looked up what the original design is supposed to look like. He's like, yeah, I, I think mine's kind of cooler, so I'm just going to stick with mine. <laughs> so they didn't base it on what they're named after at all. So they that just used the name and then did whatever they wanted. It's just, it's a cool sounding name, so that's okay. the only important thing. Yeah. Well, that's one of the... Uh that's one of the points that I'm going to bring up a little bit later. They, they seemed to do that quite a bit. Yeah. So um, this also was kind of a first. No, actually, no, it wasn't. Final Fantasy IV was the first. But this was continuing a tradition that was just getting started kind of in mm -hmm. Final Fantasy, which was that the first boss you fight um, ended up serving as a tutorial um, for a mechanic they don't really use again in the games later. So it's usually oh, yeah. attack the monster when it's oh, in this state and not the shell, yeah, not yeah, that's in, right. not when it's in this state. Yes. So in FF4, it was the, the mist dragon 
you attack it uh, when it, but when it goes into the mist, right. and it, then if you attack it, it'll do a counter attack that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. In Final Fantasy VII, it's the the guard scorpion, where when the tail is up, like don't attack. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, so they, they kind of started uh-huh. that tradition, and so anyway, they were doing that for a while, and so it's the only boss in the game that acts like this. But if the if the snail retreats into the shell, don't attack, and then wait for mm. it to come back out, and then attack it. Um, anyway. Interesting. I don't know why they... I think maybe the point was just to show people who had never played an RPG before, like me, when I played 7 for the first time. There's a, elements of strategy to these fights. Yeah. You don't yeah. just hit attack, 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 attack all the time. You have to consider um, the enemy's weaknesses. You have to consider what the enemy's doing. You have to like watch right. what they do and uh, learn more about them I and then attack accordingly. Yeah, it's more for people who are, who are new to the genre just in general because yeah. it's ne- if something is never really used again for the rest of the game, um, <laughs> why would you? Why would it be part of your intro unless right. to show that like, hey, there's strategy here. That yeah. There's a lot you can do with the RPG. It's not just boring chess. One player goes and like, there's there's more going on here. Um, I'm thinking Mario RPG as well. Mm-hmm. I think right at the very beginning, either the first or one of the first. Uh, battles you fight is against Bowser, and you, you're supposed to attack the chandelier. You're not supposed to attack Bowser oh, right. directly. Yeah. You attack the chandelier, and then it drops Bowser, and yeah, it, that made by the same <clears throat> made by the same company, by the way. So yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah, I think that that's kind of what the purpose of these boss fights was there for. Okay. Um, so you know, Biggs and Wedge go back and forth, basically tutorializing that, like, hey, yeah. don't attack it. Uh, Woolsey seemed to be able to get it right, whereas the FF7 translators did not. Where <laughs> attack while his tail's up, okay, and then it kills you. <laughs> and they got it wrong. Um, anyway, so you, you kill this uh, snail monster, the Emir, and you come upon um, a frozen Esper. This is what they're after. Um, yeah. So Big says, So this is the frozen Esper. Um, and then there's kind of a scripted battle here. You don't actually like take any actions. Yeah. Um, you know, Wedge starts to get creeped out by it, nervous. Something doesn't seem right to him. Uh, Tara is not saying anything at all through this whole section. She says nothing. Um, and then it begins to sort of emit this light. And yeah. Biggs and Wedge are like, ah, and they are obviously killed by the thing. And then she sort of seems to like emanate light herself. There's like yes. lightning and There's energy. an electrical connection, yes. Yeah, connecting yes. between them. And uh, and then, you know, we kind of cut away from that. Um, and then she's just waking up in a bed in a yeah. nearby house. Now, I have a little bit uh, to say about this particular part. So first of all, as uh, Tara and the Esper connect, right? So the whole point, the whole reason they were here was to find this Esper. Yes. Um, and this is, uh, this is funny because it's like um, archaeologists unearthed a demonic spirit that's going to curse the world. You know, and it's like <laughs> this, is, this is kind of uh, playing on that kind of idea a little yeah, bit. That's um, true. But she shows up. The Esper and her have some kind of a connection. She has like mostly fire magic, right? Yes. Uh, uh, but, and so uh, there's, there, she begins to emanate fire. I, I didn't take that to be an explosion from the attack, I took that to be her fire ignition or whatever she was protected obviously so uh but then the the lightning connection was interesting because once again as above so below um what i wrote here in my notes is the storm that was brewing is now being unleashed yeah um but also i had read this somewhere i are there characters named biggs and wedge in chrono trigger 
I don't think so. I don't okay. Trigger. I had read somewhere that might be wrong <laughs> that these characters were disappeared oh, and, and were placed in another into game. another game where yeah, it was like they went to an alternate reality. fan uh, theory-esque <laughs> to me. <laughs> okay, okay. Take that one with a grain of salt then, people. I don't know. I haven't heard that. Uh, maybe there's more evidence for that, but that's not something I've really ever All right. investigated, so I can't say. Next episode. <laughs> we'll talk about it next time. Okay. <clears throat> um, so the girl wakes up. Yeah. Uh, she speaks for the first time here in the game. Where am I? And the old man comes in, and he seems surprised that she's capable of speaking Already. Yeah, yeah. My, my, and I just removed the crown, and you're already able to speak, you're already awake. That meaning, surprises him. Meaning he's dealt with these crowns before, and he, yes. he kind of knows what he's doing. Yes, I this thought about the only that. One. I thought about that. Like, yeah. he's obviously allied with the Returners now, but it gives me some, I mean, I don't think it's ever explained. I don't think we ever see this character again. Yeah. But... Yeah. Uh, you know, what his role might have been, say, in the Empire. Is he a defector? Is he, or is he just mm. someone who's knowledgeable about these oh, things? that's a good or, point. Well, who uh, knows? Maybe he's the one that made them. Uh, who right? knows? Like, there's like a whole yeah. thing about him that's kind of mysterious here where he knows so much about slave yeah. crowns and how they should operate. And, and how to take them off. Yeah, right. Like, I'm, I'm sure the developers didn't think that much about it, but... Yeah. Um, Huh. It's still kind of interesting. It, it you know, he he seems to know what he's doing here. So, um, you know, my head hurts. She says, he says, easy there. This is a slave crown. The others were using it to control you. It was robbing you of your thoughts, making it so you do whatever you were told. She says, I'll, I can't remember a thing. He says, don't worry, it'll all come back to you in time. That is so. Um, RPGs hmm. nowadays, it's it, it's well JRPGs. Uh, have there? It's almost so common that your the main amnesia. characters have amnesia that <laughs> it's, it's just expected. <laughs> it's just like an element, almost like you know when you talk about like the elements of the hero's journey, you know, like the belly of the whale or whatever. It's just like uh, it's part of the structure the of the amnesia thing. hero. Yeah. The amnesia hero is just like yeah. part of it, almost, <laughs> almost. It's like almost that level. Yeah, the trope becomes an archetype. Um, but you know, th these games were sort of establishing that trope, but like. Let's yeah. see, we have in Final Fantasy V, Gallif has amnesia. In this game, uh, Terra has amnesia. In Final Fantasy VII, it's not really amnesia per se, well, but it's it's playing on the same like trope. That, yeah. um, Final Fantasy IX, uh, Zidane doesn't nine. know where he comes from. Yeah. It's And so the, the, the reason hmm. why yeah. they use this so often is because it allows you to put the player or the viewer into the point of yeah. view character who also doesn't know what's going on. Who dis discovers his own past along yeah. with the player. Right. Right, instead of just already knowing it and then having to exposit it to the player somehow, even yeah. though he should already know. Yeah. yeah. So this is used as a plot device, this slave crown, to have um, sort of like whatever it did, it affected her mind. And it's slowly going to come back to her. It's, it's not a permanent thing. She's going to remember, but it's just going to take a while. So... Uh, you know, she's kind of stuck right now, not knowing at all who she is or where she came, where she comes from, or anything yeah. like that. Um, oh, but then we see her, uh, her like character intro. I like how yes, they do these intros. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so this game has a very famous opera scene in it, yes, and yes, it was yes. it's and the way that they structure a lot of these things, it's kind of like the game is supposed to feel like a play. 
So like they'll they'll have these pauses where like the lights go down oh, and there's just cool. a spotlight I on didn't the think character. Of that. That's cool. And you have like an uh, uh, an omniscient sort of voice yeah. who sort of narrates and tells you more information. Yeah. It feels very much like a like theater. Sure. Um, it's almost like, like they tried to structure the game to, as if you were an audience member in a theater watching this, yes. not like a movie necessarily. Well, that actually helps a ton. You know what? That helps me to understand a lot of what happens a little bit later on. Um, that every now and then a character will turn and face towards the camera and yes. step forward and then laugh. Yes. Or right. do like a yes. do like a little <laughs> a little uh, gesture of sorts. Yes. Uh, and that's like no that that was being done towards the audience. Yes. Why why wasn't it done towards the character? Yes. You bringing that up helps me a ton. That's really good actually. I love that. Yeah. And it's... you know what? Everyone should understand this when playing this game. <laughs> Think of it as an opera or a play that is being directed towards you, the player, and not necessarily as a movie or yeah. whatever other medium you would naturally just try to project onto the events that are happening. Yeah. Thinking of it as a play, that helps a lot of it to feel less awkward, I think. I, I Yeah, I agree. And it's very intentional, I think. Um, and this kind of goes back to... I think it's canon. Some, <laughs> <laughs> some things that uh, I've talked about in maybe other podcasts. So if people haven't seen the other ones, I'll kind of just briefly reiterate this. But... Um, from the very beginning of the Final Fantasy series, the intention was to make this feel like a diorama, like a little oh, tiny set right. that they built with little tiny characters moving around yeah. inside of them. And you're mm. like this giant who's like looking down on this <laughs> little world and watching the events play out. Mm. Um, this is something Koichi Ishii, who was the pre- uh, development planner on FF1 said was one of his ideas. Oh, really? Um, was, did, was, did you talk to Sakaguchi about this when you uh, met him personally? Uh, I, I didn't because I hadn't read that ah. specific interview just yet. Okay. But we did talk about dioramas because right, Fantasian, right? We, the interview was for the purpose of promoting Fantasian. And for those right. of you who don't know Fantasian, that's Hironobu Sakaguchi's latest game, the creator of Final Fantasy, right. where essentially they built all of the sets that appear in the game, they built physical versions of them. They took high resolution photographs of those images and then they um, projected them onto 3D models. Yeah, that were scanned in. That were yeah. scanned uh, in, so anyways, yeah. so they built the model, they scanned it into a, 3D, into a 3D model, so in the computer, and then they took the photographs that they took yeah. of the physical set to texture, and they did yeah. a projection map That's right, yeah. onto the 3D model, right? Yeah. So the idea was that it would look like little characters are running around in this little world built by hand. And that's kind of what the Final Fantasy games aesthetic was supposed to look like. That's so cool. Yeah, that was kind of the idea behind it. So it's actually very fitting to present the game like a theater because mm. that's kind of what it is. A theater mm. almost looks like that. You're way up in the, in the yeah, seats way up yeah. here and you're looking down at this tiny world down here. And, and you know, when you're building sets and costumes and things for theater, right, like they have to get very creative in the way that they go about, um, particularly if you think of like amateur or like say high school theater or whatever, yeah. how are they gonna make something that looks like a tree? You know, they, they'll build it out of like paper or something <laughs> yes, like that, right? Yes, exactly, and, and, and so there's a lot of abstraction in the storytelling process of theater. 
Like you're not meant to look at it all literally. Yes. And that's exactly what JRPGs exactly. were structured like. Yeah. They were full of abstraction in that way. And so it's a very fitting, I think, medium to do kind of an adaption into. I think it would make yeah, way sure. more sense to adapt Final Fantasy VI into a stage into play, a play than into like a film or, or, or a television series yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just think that great. there's a lot of commonalities between the abstract way of telling stories in an opera or in theater and the way that they were at the time going about it in these uh, JRPGs back then. Right. It wasn't really trying for realism necessarily or right, cinematic right. flair exactly. until it moved into more the PlayStation until era. Until seven, yeah. Right? So there was kind of a transition along the way where it became more cinematic and now it's basically entirely cinematic. Um, and there's a piece of that that I miss a little bit about the yeah. old school Final Fantasy. Oh, me too. But this was definitely done for that reason. It, it was meant to feel like theater. That's so cool because you have the melodrama, right? Yeah. Which, which now this actually helps me to see Final Fantasy VIII in a little bit of a different light as well, sure, right? Yeah. But either way, you have the melodrama and you have the characters that are overreacting Everything they do is a massive overreaction, uh, but it's meant, it, looking at it as a play, just, just you know, yeah. that goes very far with me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's the reason why they do that, where they'll take all the lights yeah. down. It's totally black except for a spotlight on a character. On a single character. Other, and they kind of just do a brief little, let me tell you a little bit more about this character real quick, and they fill yeah. you in with some details. I love it. Meant to feel that way. So it's kind of cool the way that they went about presenting it. Um, That's awesome. And it so, says, a mysterious young woman controlled by the Empire and born with the gift of magic. Now, what does it say in the advanced version? <laughs> uh, let's see. So what it says is... A mysterious young woman born with the gift of magic and enslaved by the Castalian Empire. Ah, uh, close enough. Pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. yeah. And you get to choose her name, right? Now, this is a decent time to bring up. Uh, Terra. Terra means earth in Latin, and she has green hair, which goes very well with her name. However, the symbolism of her character is very suspect <laughs> because, unfortunately, the character designer only gave her green hair because everyone else was blonde. And her name in Japanese isn't Terra or anything to do with the earth at all. It's just Tina. Tina. Yep. And Tina doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> Tina, come eat your ham. <laughs> it's like, okay, Tina's a llama from Napoleon Dynamite. That's what, okay. So, uh, anyways, we'll see if there's a possibility for something later. But um, I actually, I went back, so I took this note. I, I um, went back and read a, a thing about specifically the character designer, the pixel art designer. It seems to me like she designed all of the characters to have a certain look. And then Yoshitako Amano is the one who changed her green hair to blonde. He drew the art after she designed the pixel character. Yeah, so from what I read, it seems like they would kind of be doing their designs at the same time. But okay, okay. Sakaguchi did say in specifically that her designs almost always came first, probably because it takes a lot less time to make a pixel character <laughs> yeah. than to draw a painting of a character. Exactly. But <laughs> that Shibuya's character designs usually came first before Amano's did. Okay, so, okay. I just um, wanted to clarify that from yesterday. It's from also episode. interesting that this character's name is Terra in the Earth Connection, but then yeah. one of the main... Uh, protagonists, uh, heroines from the next game from oh, Final Fantasy VII is Aerith. Oh. And for the longest time, I had no idea why that name was what it because I thought it was Eris because that's With an it was mistranslated. Aerith. But it's because it's meant to sound like Earth. Yeah, well, so, and, and she's part of connection the Cetra. Um, the Cetra, yeah, the Cetra yeah, the, her right. connection to the Earth is all kind of part of the story. So, that's cool. 
Uh, anyways, that. we'll see where well, this goes with tarot. But I, I love this because I'm seeing a lot of ideas here that I then can see how these ideas were carried into other games, oh, such yeah, as Seven, sure. Eight, Nine, Andy, sure. um, Xeno Gears, and yeah. even other games beyond that. Yeah, um, it's really cool. I love if if you know one of the coolest things about playing these old games is discovering where the new games got their ideas from, you know? Yeah. And so to the people who maybe don't hold this one as very valuable, uh, well, for other than the fact that you're just wrong, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there is still value to be had in the sense that you can see where a lot of these future games got yeah. some of their really cool, yeah. unique ideas. And, and they're all over this game. I'm seeing them everywhere. You know, Final Fantasy VII was the first one I played. Yeah, and it had such a lasting, powerful impression on me that I was compelled to go back and play all the other Final right. Fantasies. Yeah. But what's interesting- like where it all, you know, the yes. roots, right? The roots. Yes. So like, maybe I didn't love any of those games as much as I loved Final Fantasy VII when it came down to it. Or, you know, maybe I've come to appreciate them more later or whatever the case might be. But there was something about wanting to see the history and the evolution of that series through time. And like really understanding like the development process that led to this thing, which was more or less just me trying to get more appreciation out of the thing that I had already played a billion times. And <laughs> so like, you could either play it again or you yeah, could do one of the earlier how, ones. How, how can I understand this even better? Yes. I don't think That's you it. even That's consciously it. think that. Yeah. But it is really interesting to see how the ideas like evolved and I mean, stuff like uh, Magicite, right? Like Magicite yeah. sort of evolved into Materia. Right. Um, there were all kinds of ideas that kind of started here and, and kind of got carried over to later. And that was true of the game before and the game before this. You, you could, it's cool to see the evolution. So that's yeah. kind of really the point I was going to make there. Um, okay, so she remembers her name, right? That's kind of the point is you enter what her name is, whether you change it or leave it the same. And the old man is super impressed that she's able to remember her name already, that she's recovering yeah. that fast. Which once again points to, hey everyone, this girl is special. Yes, right. <laughs> this is a special she's person. We're powerful, really yeah. powerful. Um, most people would not be able to recover at the speed that she is. Yeah. So these are context clues and, and they're doing a really good job of this. I feel like in this intro, like not a lot of words have been said necessarily, but like they're able to like do a lot of story of the storytelling just in what they're suggesting. And, and that's the kind of storytelling mm -hmm. I like. Yeah. They don't have to come out yeah. and like, well, I guess he is kind of coming out and saying like, it's wow. Like people don't usually recover this fast, but what you're drawing from that is Tara is like, it's a super, super powerful yes. sorceress. Um, yes. And, and you, you kind of draw those hints like, from from the dialogue rather than them having to be like super on the nose about it. Yeah. Some well, might argue it. that this is on the nose, but I don't I wouldn't clarify classify. I, I it wouldn't that put way. this on the nose either. Um but we will pretty soon we're gonna get just more and more hints that she's not normal. Not that you need a ton of hints that she's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but like for instance, this happens later on, but when Edgar is like hitting on her. Yes. And she's like for most girls that probably would have done something, but yeah. for her, she just kinda dot 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 She's like, but I'm not normal, right? Yeah. So we're really just like hammering down the the fact that she is she's very unique, but we don't know why, and that's why it's such an intriguing mystery. Yeah. We don't know why she's different. Yeah. Um, so then the so soldiers, the soldiers yeah. from Narsh come after her. He sends her out the back door. Says, "Go through the mines. Yeah, go to the mines. You know, escape into the mines. So, into the mines. <laughs> she runs away, 
um uh because they're they're saying stuff about like she's a she's a agent of the empire yeah and all this stuff and he's like well empire like what do you mean like i don't yeah. even know what that is all about so he's like they're not gonna listen like these these people have they just don't understand like you have to run away or else they're gonna try to you know right capture in, or kill in you. some way he's even talking about his own townspeople right like yeah. they don't get it that yeah they don't get that you were being mind controlled yeah um okay so as she runs away they kind of pursue her into yeah. the caves she falls through like a like a, a weak part of the floor and yeah. kind of like passes out um, and she gets a little flashback. Yes, this flashback is really interesting. Um, so we, this is our first introduction to Kefka, uh, who is a court mage of Emperor Gestal. So um, he's, uh, the, for just from, I guess, that title, court mage, I think Edgar even calls him that a little bit later, he would be able to use magic too, hmm. um, which also creates kind of this other mystery where it's like the way that Edgar and... Locke react to seeing Terra use magic <laughs> in the right. battle when they yeah. just freak out. They right? completely lose it's it. It's <laughs> like, dude, magic shouldn't exist. Yeah. Yet this guy, Kefka, is called a court mage, mm, right? right? So what's up with that? Yeah. And and maybe even the little PS1 intro has, and, and this scene here, hmm. sort of like um, uh, hint at like the fact that there's sort of a special bond of sorts between uh, Kefka and Terra. And mm. that's all going to be revealed much later. But so Very interesting. he says here, my sweet little magic user with this slave crown, you'll be all mine. So she's kind of remembering when they put it on. Yeah. Good, good. Burn them all to a crisp. So that, I think this is the scene that the, that Biggs and Wedge were referring to earlier where she fried yeah. all the Magitek armors. Yep. He, he had used her to do that in, in some sort of demonstration of her power. Um, and so then after that point, we have Emperor Gestal who's yep. standing in front of, and he says, a, a new power is rising. <laughs> yes. One of those sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, evil villain, yeah. uh, tyrant speeches, right? Soldiers of the empire. We stand at the dawn of a new age. The lost power of magic has returned to us. So he has reawakened yes. magic. Yeah. We are the chosen ones. The time has come for us to claim our rightful dominion over the world. Nothing shall stand in our way. And they're all like, hurrah, long live the empire. You know, all that kind of stuff. So yep. uh, she then passes out. Um, then we have another main character introduction here, Locke. He comes running into that old man's house. And the first thing he says <laughs> is, is great. <laughs> I, I love this. It, it's, it's, and this, this, it was fun. Okay. So one of the things that we talk about abstractions and like their way, the way in which they got across like emotions of characters and things like that in these games back then, there was a very charming use of emotes <laughs> uh, yeah. that they did. And I think this really kind of started in FF5, but here as mm -hmm. well. And in Chrono Trigger, they did this a lot. The yeah. big bug eyes, right? Like oh surprise <laughs> emotes where so it's good. like you're saying, it's so over the top. It's as if it's a play yes. and the, they're overdoing it so people in the back can see. Exactly yeah. right. You have to enunciate way, way more and be and project your voice way, way more and be way bigger in your expressions yeah. as a theater stage yeah. actor because you're, you, if you're too subtle, the people on the front row might have seen that but the people up there won't get it. They right. won't understand what's going on. Yeah. So on the stage, it's 
it, you have to have the villain cackle and just like <laughs> maniacally laugh yeah. to get across the point that he is um, you know, plotting something horrible. Right. Whereas on a film, you can come in this close to the character's face and just see the twinkle in his just eye. A little, yeah. And yeah. you can get the same point across. Right. So they, that's why they have to do that to really like get the point across here. It's just funny mm -hmm. that he, what the old man says to him is, you took you long enough, busy with all the robbing and plundering, I presume. <laughs> so he's accusing him of being a thief. And, and Locke's expression, boom! Oh! <laughs> that's really funny and charming it's really as funny. an overreaction to yeah, that statement yeah. right um but it really works because <laughs> you're looking at a character that big <laughs> exactly it wouldn't be the same yeah, if exactly. you were to do a remake of final fantasy 6 where Locke did a oh reaction gosh, yeah. to that and you're like cinematic yes so that's why Hmm. when you're when the medium changes per se even though it's not really changing the medium but like the style of presentation from cinematic or from theatrical to cinematic there's a lot of things you kind of have to rework or else it doesn't really like make sense for them to be acting this big right, right exactly um which i'm sure was a, a lot of discussion that went on with the final fantasy 7 remake and how big do we make Barrett's reactions to everything because in the game he's just constantly stamping and like and, <laughs> yeah. and they're there you know you see cloud yeah, yeah. and people when they get excited they just like jump like across the freaking room and like you that don't that won't really work <laughs> if you're gonna try to you just got to try to translate That's the emotion cool. without the actual literal like animation or movement yeah. right so anyways I really liked that about these games that they were theatrical in this me too sense. I loved it so it's great. And then, so, you know, you, you, the screen goes black and you have the little spotlight on lock and they lock. tell you a little bit about him. Yeah. A treasure hunter, a trail worn traveler searching the world over for relics of the past. And he goes, I prefer the term treasure hunting. So he doesn't like being called a thief or, or a, a plunderer or a robber or rogue. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm an adventurer. I'm a, I'm a noble treasure hunting type. Right. And, and the old man's like, oh, that's semantic nonsense. Yeah, he's whatever like, no, there's prefer. a huge difference, man. There's a huge difference. So this is kind of his gag, you know, his yeah. comedic relief. Uh, you'll see several times people calling him a thief. And he's like, no, I'm not a thief. So um, let's see. So here's one pretty big difference that I took note of for the translations that kind of make a big difference to me. It's just a small thing, but it makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, so in the original SNES translation. Oh, um, I have Isaac notes on this too. Yeah. So the old yeah. man says something like, indeed, I met this girl, right? Yes. Like I've, I've met the girl. And in the original version, Locke says like it's dot, dot, mm -hmm. dot with like a huge exclamation mark and question mark. Like yeah. what? Like he's surprised. This better not have anything to do with that Magitek writing Imperial Witch. See, and this is where, okay, so we've been very, um, what is it, almost, not deferential, but we've, we've been very kind to Ted Woolsey. Sure. Given, oh, you know, you you didn't have much time and all of that stuff. I, I When I read the original Japanese for this line, I was shocked at what <laughs> Ted did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, wait. It totally wait, changes I the get feel of it. you were under crunch why did you feel that you could change the entire tone of not just like the scene, but the character and their yeah. relationship? Mm -hmm. And like, why are, why, why are you making it seem like Locke is really upset at her and doesn't like her when the truth is in the Japanese, he says something more like, 
Oh, are you that girl from before? Is that who you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Right? In this one, it's like, you better not be talking about that witch. And it's like, whoa, buddy. It's like totally that, different. It changes his character. It changes the scene. It changes a lot. And like I said about, you know, the intro of the game, I spend so much time just trying to analyze the intro of the game because that's going to tell us like so much about the future, so much about how the game's going to go. It puts you in the right state. It, it builds the world for you so that your imagination can grab it, you know? And that's true of character introductions too, right? Mm. This is the building of a character and, and we're seeing, you know, this, the first time we meet Locke and what my impression is, oh, he's kind of a jerk dude. He, um, he doesn't really care about her. He's prejudgmental, right? He thinks that because she does magic that he's scared of her. And like that, that was my initial thinking. And I, I was, I was, I don't know another word, but shocked. I was shocked to read the Japanese and be like, I don't think I've ever seen it this bad. Like, yeah. like, it's not enough to just say, oh, Ted, you didn't have enough time. It's like, this was, there, there needs to be some punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm joking, of course, but like, this isn't okay. This is way too I far. don't think this is okay. This I, is I, way I can't make an excuse for him here. Yeah, it doesn't make sense for Locke to feel this way about her. Yeah. Um, Locke is no. a, well, he's a go-between, but he's allied with the Returners. The Returners, he was sent here, I think, specifically to try to find her. Um, right. In fact, I may be wrong about that. Maybe okay. he just kind of stumbled upon it and he was in the area or whatever. But he heard about right. her. Right, he was aware of her. Yeah. And th the Returners would like to recruit her to exactly. their side. They want to get her on their team. Yes. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense for him to be like, oh, no, that horrible thing, like I that know. horrible person. What are you talking about? So... In the advanced translation, again, you have the exclamation mark with the question mark, you know, the yeah. surprise. Yeah, that is still there. And then he just says, you don't mean, and that's it. You, you mean you really did? You really found her? That's a totally different connotation. Yeah. You, you better not be talking about this person versus, did you really find her? Right. Totally different meanings. So, like, that's the kind of thing that Ted Woolsey got wrong quite frequently, actually. Yes. Now, Mix jumping to Ted Wolseley's defense as hard as he can on our Patreon uh, Discord chat here said that uh, Tara could have had a really bad reputation because she had killed 50 soldiers and that Locke would have reason to be weary. I don't think that makes sense for him being upset, but it would make a little more sense if he was like weary. I think, he, I think he could be nervous and a little bit cautious. While still not like pissed, like you better not, yeah, that scum of the earth witch. That's yeah, don't be, not, don't you dare tell me that that's who you're talking about because that's not his character and that's not the way his character, <laughs> yeah, and it's not his character either. Yeah. That's the important part. Um, one other thing that was brought up here in the chat mm -hmm. you brought up the Aerith sounds like earth and it's supposed to mean something like earth. Well, cloud, yep, is kind of like sky or As celestial above, so or, below or whatever. Yeah, once again, you got the sky earth economy, okay, yeah. All right. Well, let's keep going to back to Final Fantasy VI. Okay. So, um, old man. Okay. He says the city guard is pursuing her as we speak. This city has the strength to stand up to the em or doesn't have the strength hmm. uh, to stand up to the empire. Oh no! It's his, he says they do have the strength to stand up to the empire, but they won't use it. So they they refuse uh, to fight the empire. Right. They're trying to stay neutral yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, these people are just too stubbornly independent to join an underground resistance group like the Returners. I tried to explain that the Empire was controlling the girl, but they wouldn't even listen. So um, maybe that's why he's in the town. So if he's if he's allied with the Returners, he's one of the yeah. Returners. Maybe he came there trying to like you know persuade 
Narsh to like join them and sure. fight against the empire. Yeah. But he's, he's become fed up with them at this point because they won't do it. They're too stubborn. Right. right. So he's like, they're, they're not going to listen. Um, although they're definitely anti the empire. That's yes. for sure. Yes. Uh, oh, oh the, so there we go. That, that is the point I wanted to make. So that's another mistranslation. That's why I got confused for a second because <laughs> in the original version, he says Imperial, Imperial troops are pursuing her even as we speak. This is the, the example that I brought up from the text from that link earlier. Oh, sure. It was like one of the pictures. Yeah, yeah. It says this town is no match for the empire. Hmm. But in the retranslation, this city has the strength to stand up to the empire, but won't use it. Hmm. So, I mean, that's again, that's a good, yeah. Well, that's really, really, really badly off. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's a really bad mistake <laughs> to make. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so Locke runs off after her finds her in the cave. She's yep. about to be attacked by some soldiers. He but teams up with some Moogles. <laughs> we have, yes, we have Deus Ex Moogle happening here. <laughs> this was just just shocking and yeah. fun and interesting and surprising and all the things all at once. I love Moogles. Um, I, Moogles were kind of a different thing prior to this game, right? And they... Um, had a different design too. I think for Final Fantasy VI in particular, their design was made to be a little more cutesy, a little more kind well, of what it became later. So Moogle's first appearance was on the NES games. I think it was Final Fantasy III. Mm -hmm. um, Koichi Ishii had actually drawn Moogle since he was in high school or oh, really? sometime wow. in grade school. So they were, that their little white bear sort of design was the original design. Okay, okay. Um, but I think they they are a little different in six. And they cutesied him up and made him fatter and I don't know. Well, um, what's actually interesting is the, the, have you seen the commercial for Final Fantasy VI, the TV commercial no. where no. Mog is like, he's like an executive, like boss character and people <laughs> can come in and he's like, next. And he comes in and he like lights him on fire or does magic to him. Hold wow. on. You got to freaking see that. It's That's so funny. pretty funny. <laughs> we'll have to like play this. Fantasy 3. You have what it takes. And what's funny love it. is that Mog was on the cover of the game. So, like, the that's Final Fantasy 6 cover. Funny. yeah. Well, actually, let me make sure that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Mog is on the cover. So, you have the Final huh. Fantasy 3 title with the sword, you know, the old logo. And then it's just Mog there, and it's just like some purple monster looking thing. And so that's, you know, they did the commercial. The commercial is so funny because I would have no idea from watching that, like what this game is about yeah. at all. And I would be really surprised upon buying it that like <laughs> the Moogle's not the main guy or something. Why would they put the Moogle on the front cover like that and, and have him feature in the marketing? Um, that's an interesting decision. I think it's, huh. it's a Japanese mascot thing. It's just like they, yes, they like their mascots for things, but I don't know how that didn't, how that translated to the American box art. Because usually yeah. they changed them a lot. Yeah, the Squaresoft, yeah, their North American representatives should have been like, hey, guys, people want, like, swords and dragons and stuff. <laughs> like, yep. not this, like, teddy bear. You know what? I just had a thought. And this is a complete tangent at this point. Yeah. We're, like, tangenting like crazy. <laughs> but I read a quote that I, I didn't end up reading for last week's development history episode. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring it up at some later point. But uh, Kitase was taught, and I think Sakaguchi too, uh, they were, they said over the years they've been surprised when they go to conventions or, um, you know, whatever, they meet fans mm -hmm. and people 
have all this passion and enthusiasm for Final Fantasy VI, and it's their favorite game. Mm, right, and yeah, they're like, yeah. you know, that surprised me to hear that because this game didn't sell that well. They did not right. consider Final mm. Fantasy VI to be a strong seller right. at the time. And I also meant to bring up in the last episode that they had this extreme boiling rivalry with Enix and yeah, their Dragon Quest yeah. series. It was yeah. like their mission and goal in life <laughs> <laughs> at this point to try to outsell a Dragon Quest game. Yeah. So they the, you know Dragon Quest would release their next title, Final Fantasy would come shortly after it and you know Final Fantasy was doing well for Square. It was their flagship yeah, yeah. series, but it would never ever really approach the fame and popularity of Dragon Quest in Japan. Hmm. And so, you know, they they viewed Final Fantasy 6 as a bit of a disappointment sales-wise. Hmm. Um and now that I think about it, it's like, why was that the cover art in America? <laughs> Someone should have told them. Somebody should have been like, hey, maybe put your character in the, yeah, like, your main right? character. Well, because they end up saying something like, you know, they, they, these fans would tell me like how much they loved the game and how much it meant to them. And yeah. their thought was like, well, then why didn't you buy it? And it's like, well, dude, right. because that cover art right there tells me nothing about what most people appreciate about Final Fantasy VI. There you go. And I think the cover art for the Super Famicom version was just basically the logo, which is still okay. a way stronger image. The Final Fantasy logo with the Terra riding the, the Magitech armor behind it. Oh, sure, The yeah. Amano art. Yeah, yeah. Um, but just without the Moogle. Without the Moogle, <laughs> without this uh, different logo that they had for the American versions. Yeah. The purple. Which looks more Dragon Quest-y, actually. Yeah. And so, I don't know. It, it, this is, in most cases, I think mm. Japanese box art is better than American box art yeah, for I games. Often, I often think that. This is probably the first case I can think of where it, I think it's the opposite. I think <laughs> this is, well, oh, sorry. No. What did I just say? The, uh, this is a, an, another case where the American box art was just like really, really, I don't know. Like, I don't know who that's. When you mm. go into a store and you saw Xenogears on the shelf. Yeah. And you saw, I mean, th this is actually lending to my point. Final Fantasy VII, too. You see Cloud and the Buster Sword. Like, you yes. see that image yes. and you go, I want to play that. That sold that game so bad. That sword design sold that whole game. Yeah. The sword yeah. and the spiky the blonde hair, hair yeah, yeah. sold Final Fantasy VII yes. as much as any uh, commercial Anything or any else. promotion yep. aside from that. Because back then, parents and kids would walk into a store. Which game do you want? Yep. That one looks sweet. I, I wonder what kid walked into a store, or how many, I guess, in general, walked yeah. into a store and looked at that box art and went, versus something else that had, you know, a cool tank on it or something like that. Yeah. And, and they would pick that instead. And so, if they did happen to pick it, they would, they would have been very happy with themselves. Very but surprised. <laughs> like, it's, uh, yeah, it just doesn't really tell you much about it. Yeah. So anyway. Tangent over on that, I guess. All right. Um, where were we? Back to Deus Ex <laughs> Moogles. <laughs> we're talking about Moogles. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Moogles were designed from the beginning to be kind of cutesy little white bears. Okay, okay. So I could thing. I could be misinformed on that. Uh, it could just be that what I had read was referencing the fact that the pixel art was so much better here that you were able to get a better idea image of the Moogles than like. you had ever gotten in previous games. Yeah. Um, but either way, this is pretty cool. This is actually um, is a thing that uh, ends up happening a little bit. Well, in Final Fantasy VII, you end up having to do something very similar. Um, but you 
position your Mughals as if they're an army and you put them uh, along the branching paths as these soldiers are coming up and you fight a bunch of battles um, and a bunch of Mughals show up, like tons of them. And so they save you from all of the soldiers that are trying to uh, capture Terra and uh, Locke. And it's really cool. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I can't remember if this happens again in the game or if this is kind of the only time. Um, but it's I cool. Think there's to, there's other examples where you at least split the party. And where you split yeah. the party. That's yeah. true. Um, but it's cool to be able to control, you know, multiple different people. It's a, it's a different kind of way to make the RPG battle system more interesting, I think. Yeah. That's um, cool. Speaking about ideas that popped up in an earlier game that seemed to have inspired something later, that this actually feels a little bit similar, though much more simple to the battle scenes you do in FF7 when you're protecting the big phoenix bird on the mountain and yes, the Shinra um, troops are coming that's up. That's what I was referencing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of, it's got that feel. It's got so that feel to it. This, mm. and I don't, this would have been the first FF game where that happened. Yeah. yeah. Right? Mm. And then you that see that carried idea. on in uh, in later games. Yeah, for sure. I think you're right about that. Um, we got chat here posting some images, different images, like cover images of Final Fantasy VI. Oh, so the like for the anthology. PS1 definitely that one's cool, awesome. <laughs> cool this one. one for the Game Boy Advance is That's way better. Sweet. Um, here's the Xeno Gears with, with, with the freaking the awesome mech and the wings. Like just the, okay, these. Okay, by the look, way, here, there's the Final Fantasy VI Japan. Yeah. Like that's dope, dude. Okay, go down to Xeno Gears really quick. Okay, uh-huh. that is. Imagine that that's a that's a crucifix cross, but you're underneath it looking up and it's yeah, at an like angle at and it's angled angle. in 3D space yep. going that way. I think you're yeah. right about that, the X. I never realized that. Just <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yep. Okay. So let's see here. Um, anyways, you, you rescue her. Mog is yep. one of the Moogles that fights with you. He's, yeah. he's the only Moogle well, you can actually change talks, right? the equipment. Oh, there you go. And like examine in that way. Nice, nice. Um, so anyways, Mog will come back later. But <laughs> you can it. you can steal his equipment. Um, so you can like go in and unequip oh, and him take and stuff. take his stuff hey, and then cool. give it that's to cool. someone else. Because I think he has a mithril spear and a mithril shield. Nice. Which are better than like the bucklers and other equipment that characters at point, yeah. have at this point. So I uh, love the text. Thanks, Moogles. We're in your debt. <laughs> yep. Like the world's about to end. You're stuck in the bottom of a cave. The Imperial soldiers are coming to get you. And this yep. just army of teddy bears comes and kills them all and leaves. <laughs> and you're just like, this is normal. Thank you, Moogles. We'll see you next time. <laughs> see so ya. funny. Yep. I, do you feel like uh, the idea of Moogles having prominence in FF is something like Ewoks from Return of the Jedi? I do. Okay. I do. Um, just I thinking don't, about it. I feel like I, I can't say whether or not like anyone has ever spoke, like whether Koichi Ishii has said, I drew Moogles in high school because I watched Star Wars, you know, like a direct link right. like that. But certainly like they feel similar, right? Like a similar yeah. idea. I feel like when selling the idea of putting a character like a Moogle in a game like this to the executive board, <laughs> you would in there, you would have to bring up Ewoks in order to say, yes, people will be, people want this. Yeah. Well, I guess in Japan, they're always looking for mascot characters anyways. So uh, you, when you a see a point. Chocobo a point, yeah. or a Moogle design, it's like, there it is. That's, a that's what we're looking for. <laughs> I, I guess um, I'm thinking more from an American From an American standpoint, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So anyways, they get out of there. Locke kind of carries her body out. Yes. Um, you know, flips a switch. They're about to leave. She's Once like, again, his expression is priceless. Yeah. When he finds out she has amnesia and he's just like, whoa, <laughs> you have amnesia? Yep. 
<laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, so she's saying, oh, you saved me? He says, save your thanks for the Moogles. And she's like, oh, I That's can't right. remember a thing. It's like my mind's trapped in a fog. He's like, you lost your memory? Yeah, he just like well, loses it. Now, this makes a, maybe a little bit more sense as to why he would be surprised or upset to hear that because, again, the right. returners want to recruit her. Exactly. And if she doesn't have her memory, does that mean she doesn't have her powers or whatever? Oh, fair he's, enough. Yeah, he's going to find out soon enough that that's not right, the case. Yeah. But anyway, um, so he's like, you know, surprised about that. Uh, she says that a man said it would come back eventually. He says, so you've got amnesia. Don't worry. I won't leave your side until your memory returns. And she's confused by that. Like, I'm not going to abandon someone just because they lost their memory. You know, I'll keep you safe. So they decide they're going to head to Figaro, which is where Figaro. the man told Locke to take her. Yes. Um, to go so see the king, the of, king Figaro. of Figaro, Edgar. who is Edgar. Now, Edgar is great, man. Uh, kind of playing double agent a little bit here. He's yeah, got yeah. like an, a formal alliance or a formal treaty with the Empire. Yes. But he is secretly a returner himself. Yep, yep. Um, so that's why they're going there uh, to meet him. So you leave Narsh and you, you head Narsh. through the there's desert. A, there's a building right at the entrance of Narsh that's a classroom. It's called the classroom. Yep. The, I the love tutorials. This, I yep. loved this concept. Yep. I thought this was super cool. I don't know how often games do stuff like this, but a separate place that's out of the way where you can, but it's in the way enough to where you probably won't miss it if yeah. you're just looking around. Um, and if you're new to this genre of games or if you've never... Um, I don't know if you just want to kind of delve more into the way this particular battle system works. Um, you can go there and spend as much time there as you want. Yep. And there's tons of people talking to you. Yep. And I thought that was super cool. Yeah. That kind of became a tradition of the series as well. They were doing that back in final fantasy four. They had a bunch of people who would teach you the, the mechanics of the game. Even in mm -hmm. final fantasy seven, there's some rooms in Junon where people will, well, there's the, the arms, like yeah, where they sell that's um, right. weapons and in, then you in go up to near the seventh top. heaven. Yeah. They do that a little bit there, but yeah. then later in Junon, they have like a second one where they go even more into depth on some things. So that's right. This was kind of a final fantasy tradition thing. To Love do. it. Um, and then in the overworld, I just, I look as soon as you leave a town and you're at the over overworld, this is how games should be. Like, <laughs> this is the way. Overworld map feels awesome with a small it? character, I and love then it. the music playing, and it's just like boom—you can go wherever you want to. Yeah, and the world just opens up, and it, often it takes you by surprise because you're playing the game in a certain way, and as soon as you leave the city, you don't really know exactly what's coming next, and it's just like just the freedom—it just screams like freedom to you uh, as soon as you're on the overworld map. It's yeah. so so cool. I uh, another tangent time here, um, so. I was a fan of the series. I started following it really closely, kind of like around the time. This would have been like PS3 era, and so the PSP was out, right? Mm. Um, and I don't think I was necessarily at the time maybe so concerned or, or, or whatever about like thinking about the mechanics of Final Fantasy in any really deep way. Okay. I was just excited for the next Final Fantasy game to come out. Like, I love Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy is awesome. But I didn't really like think about the series or... or the genre of the game or like the structure of how they were made in this one versus this one in any deep way at the time. Um, so I think I had played final fantasy 13 recently and it had, you know, my feelings on that. And then I was playing Dissidia Duodecim, which is the second oh, yeah. final fantasy, uh, Dissidia like game, beat em up. uh, fighting game. Right. And on the Vita it's on the PlayStation portable so psp oh okay and 
they have an overworld map in that game that you run around on. And I remember that was the first time where I went, oh yeah, why don't they do this anymore? <laughs> Wait a second. At that point. They have not been doing this yeah. for a long time. Right. So what happened to this? This I missed this so 10, much. 10 or yeah. Yeah, I was yeah. like, dude, because like Final Fantasy it's 10 so cool. didn't really have it. Final Fantasy 10 no, had, really. had like kind of linear math. So it was, it was yeah, since yeah. FF9, since the PlayStation 1, I hadn't played a game. I think there were some on the PlayStation 2 that did it, but I hadn't played them. I hadn't played an RPG since the PlayStation 1 at that point where yeah. they had an overworld map. And I hadn't really thought about it in any deep way. Until and, you see until it. Until I just saw like, it. So cool. And I was like, why didn't they do this in Final Fantasy 13? Why didn't they do this in Final Fantasy 12? Why didn't they, why didn't they do this? Yeah. This is way better. Yes. <laughs> I love so this. cool. I love this. <laughs> this is how all JRPGs should be. This, anyway. This is the way. Because, again, it's the abstraction, right? And yes. the abstraction gets across this point of this giant world that you're exploring. The whole world. You're, you're going to go all over the world. It's like yeah. the scale of it is so huge. But we're not going to make you walk like, uh, you know, one-to-one <laughs> -one scale like around the world, right? And, and the other thing that, that ended up being missed from some of those other RPGs was like vehicles. And that was such a huge part of the exploration part of Final yeah, Fantasy that I missed right, was right. getting a vehicle or riding on a chocobo or a, an airship, airship. Yes. And going around and exploring it. Yep. And freely, I mean, freely. Yeah. That's part of the abstraction. One of the things that an abstraction allows you to do is it allows your mind to interpret it, right? So, so it's not just freedom of movement, but the taking an abstraction and making it even lower resolution. Yes. So like just gives your mind more freedom to like imagine what is happening here or to think about like, it's not just the potential of what you can do and where you can go. It just feels so immersive. I absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. And for, again, any of you who have not seen say our final fantasy 10 podcast series, hmm. um, this goes all the way back to the original final fantasy as well. This will be in the retrospective coming out soon. Um, Good. This was the, the idea of an airship, like which is now a commonality. It's just like it's synonymous almost with JRPGs, particularly of the 90s era. Yeah. Um, that was a Final Fantasy invention. Like airships as a, a thing was created by That's the Final right. Fantasy team. That's right. And the entire idea behind it was how should we put teleport magic in this game mm. to allow players to quickly go from one town to another? Is that something we should do? And Hironobu Sakaguchi, uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi said, no, I don't like that because we designed all of this stuff on this world map for them to find, and they're going to skip over it. They'll never find it yeah. if we don't make them physically traverse it. So let's give them a fast way to do that. And that's where the idea of airships and, and the different vehicles you get in Final Fantasy came from, was mm. this will allow you to avoid battles, to go quickly, but you might see something over there and go, oh, that's what's cool. that? I got to go check that out. Yeah. And that whole exploration a aspect of Final Fantasy was hugely important to how it felt, you know, right. to, to learn those worlds and explore those worlds. And so, yeah, I get that feeling Very cool. similarly every time you come to the world map in Final Fantasy VI. It's just like, these world maps are so cool. And this was the yeah. first time it was um, rendered in Mode 7 all the time. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the whole, yeah. the, the world was kind of like angled and you can look off onto the horizon and... yeah. Good stuff. So cool. Um, 
dude Mackay says, yeah, the abstraction also uh, helps you, um, your mind to kind of just like grasp the distance here. Um, and it could be, it could have taken multiple days. It took you two minutes to go to one place, yeah. but like it could have been multiple days. Right. So they cool. traveled really far, even though it only took a short time. Compression, right? We talked about compression earlier. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and then Mix got, got, has a good point here too. It also sells more of the belief that the characters have had off-screen time to bond. To bond, sure. Right. Uh, also, is when you use a tent or when you, um, I'll talk a little bit about the hotel later. Um, but you know, you're, you're you're thinking about what's happening here, and and the game <laughs> Sakaguchi knows that people are thinking about this. Um, as it's happening, right? People are kind of imagining what's happening. So it doesn't all have to be delivered to you directly via dialogue. Yeah. So you reach Figaro. Figaro. Here. You go meet the king, Edgar. Um, yeah. And the castle is r- pretty sweet. It is. It's it got is like really these cool. turbines that are turning yeah. everywhere. And, yeah, little... Castle right in the middle. Uh, the, the wise man did not build his house upon the rock in this case. <laughs> he built it upon the sand. He built it on the sand. But there's a twist. <laughs> but there's but a twist. I, he really was the wise man, though. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he was. <laughs> <laughs> the wise man did it this time, the wise not the man, foolish man. The wise man built his house up, um, capable of submerging <laughs> under the sand. That's in the, emergency. That's the really wise man. That's right? the, the wisest man. You know that you've seen those those uh, bell curve <laughs> things, right? Where it'll show like I, IQ 60. You know, like yeah. wise man built his house upon a rock and then IQ 100 is like, no, wise man built, oh, the foolish man. Built his house on so the sand. So IQ 60 builds house on sand. IQ 100 builds house on rock. But then IQ 160 builds is on like, sand. builds on sand. <laughs> the wisest man builds his hand on sand. Oh, I might have to yes. make that meme just so that I can show it's it for perfect, this podcast. We'll make, a, we'll make a shirt and we'll sell it to our fans. <laughs> um, okay, so they meet the king. And yeah. he says something similar. You mean this woman is, this is what leads me to think that they all have heard rumors of her. Yeah. And that they were reached, yeah. eager to try to recruit her. Yeah. So you mean this is this is the woman right. we're, we're looking for, we've been talking about? Tara says, who are you? He says, oh, my apologies. How rude of me to turn my back on a lady on our very first meeting. And then we do the on-screen thing that goes black <laughs> and it just shows him. The young king of Figaro oh, Castle, Im, uh, imperial ally and champion of the technological revolution. So that's why his castle is capable of doing... What it's doing is because yeah. he's into the tech, right? The, the the I guess the kingdom of Figaro Figaro is technologically they're, they're technologically advanced. They're yeah. on the edge, the the cutting edge, the cutting yeah. edge of that stuff. He is an innovator. Um. So oh, I see. love this. You talked to one of the guards right outside of Edgar's um, area. Well, maybe not right out, but it's a little ways out. Um, he says, it doesn't look like it, but this castle incorporates some of the most high-tech devices in existence. For example, oops, yeah. they're all top secret. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love- I got a good laugh out of that one. How they used NPCs at the time, too, right? I know, to give you it's hints so about things in the world yeah, yeah. like that. And they did them in such a short space, again, just like one just or like two one. dialogue boxes, and then it was over. Yep. Um, you have to find all the NPCs, though. Yeah, it's great. Um Oh, and then this also leads to the fact that, like, his sort of, like, gameplay ability are, are all tools. Mm. So he uses tools as his weapons. So, like, oh, technology. Oh, cool. yeah, that's right. So, like, the, yeah. the bio blaster, the noise yeah. blaster, the auto crossbow. The noise blaster. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all sort of like, uh, you know, these almost... Um, you know, wacky inventor yeah, level wacky. sort yeah, of yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. inventions for different weapons that he's been, you, you can see, you could imagine that he, you know, sort of like works on in his free time. Like what kind of crazy thing can I come up with next? Right. 
Um, anyway, so that that's who he is and what he's yeah. all about. Um, um, he's also something of a, a womanizer. Yes. <laughs> and he tries to hit on her right away. His character's great. I really like Edgar. Um, yeah, I do too. You don't know quite what to make of him initially, but he's fun. Yeah. So he tries to hit on her because uh, yeah. she's like, oh, what, why are you being so nice why to me? Is it, is it because of my abilities? You know, she's still trying to like. Now, what does the advance say? Because I loved the dialogue in the SNES. Yeah, they're similar, but um, he says, I'll give you three reasons. First of all, your beauty has captivated me. Second, I'm dying to know if I'm your type. And he says, I guess your abilities would be a distant third. <laughs> okay. And that's more or less that. Yeah. And, and she's like confused. <laughs> And then obviously, again, he's, he probably is like defeated when he realized that didn't work. And so she's, <laughs> so she's like, what's the matter? And he says, guess my technique's getting a bit rusty. Yeah, I guess I'm getting a bit rusty. And, <laughs> and that's, this is where she says, you know, any other yeah. girl would have been in a swoon, but I guess I'm not normal, right? Yeah, right. Now, you can read that in the uh, Bella from Twilight, like... I'm not normal. I'm a teenager and I'm unique and I'm a different. I'm not like all those other girls. But I actually think what the game is going after more is that she really isn't normal. Like yeah. there's something very different about her. Um, and she, when she says other girls would have done this, it's not, it's not that she's so proud of how unique she is and ha, it, didn't, it didn't work on me. It's yeah. almost like she's kind of like longing, like, whoa, th this is I, what normal people do. I wish do. I could be more I'm normal. not normal, and I, I want to be normal. I, I can't, and I don't know why. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a, of a sadness that goes along with it. Right. Um, so you're allowed to kind of explore the castle yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you fun. can't really proceed with the story until you talk to the high priestess, and she's the one that tells you about Edgar's uh, twin brother, Sabin. And there's a little bit of a That's scene right. that takes place here. Yeah, um, and this is could. the scenario that we were talking about in the first episode that was written by Kaori Tanaka, uh, also known as yes. Soria Saga, <clears throat> the <throat> writer for Xenogears. Yeah. So she wrote this scenario between Edgar and Sabin. And I love the music that accompanies this. I think it's called Coin Song. And the reason it's called that is mm. uh, it's a scene that we'll see later. So I won't spoil yet why it's called Coin Song. But it's one yeah. of my favorite uh, pieces of music in the game. It's like it mm. kind of embodies everything about the Final Fantasy VI soundtrack that I like so much. It's like, you you can't help but just like feel so good when you listen to it, but it's like pretty sad music. Mm, <laughs> it's melancholic. It's like, it's like got this air to it that's like a little bit sad and depressing, but there's a piece of it too that's just so full of like, sort of like the the hope, the ray of hope, which is something Bannon brings up later, right? Ah, uh, yes, um, the Pandora's which box. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking we probably won't get to anymore today. Um, but we probably should wrap up <laughs> soon, actually. <laughs> I think we'll probably wrap up after this scene. Okay. But anyways, th there's like that duality to all the music where on the surface it sounds really sad or melancholic or depressing, but there's kind of that just that ray inside of it that is a little mm, bit hopeful. That's cool. I like that. Or beautiful. I like that out of that. And, um, that's cool. And I feel the same way. I kind of talked about this with Final Fantasy VIII's um, uh, Fisherman's Horizon. Horizon. Yeah, yeah, Similar right. kind of that's feeling right. to that, right? So um, I really, really love it. So that music is kind of playing here as, mm. well, you name him in the scene, but it's Sabin comes in like, Edgar, like, what's wrong with dad? Like, why is everyone talking about his successor? He, and, and Edgar's like, are you blind? Haven't you seen how thin his face has become? Yeah. Uh, Sabin seems to be mm. maybe trying to ignore or just like not think about the fact that their yeah. dad is dying, right? Uh, he's also younger and I don't know how much younger. Well, he's supposed to be his twin brother is oh, what she right. says. So they're the but same they still, age. Don't they say younger? Maybe not. Okay, I see. 
Oh, because um, oh, in, in, at least in the SNES, he's just called Youth. They don't say his name. Initially. Yeah, they say Youth, and then you'd name him in the scene. That's yeah. it. Okay. So I, I assumed I think, it meant younger, but you're uh, right. The idea is twins. that they were supposed... I think the okay. reason it's confusing is because yeah. they're using the same sprites um, for okay. like the current Edgar and Sabin. For their kids. <laughs> but they're they supposed younger. to be kids at the time, okay, I think. Okay. Like teenage probably teenagers uh, so they're supposed okay. to be younger in the scene but it doesn't look that way based that on the sense. sprites they used um so he's uh Sam's like well what do you mean and he's like edgar and then edgar kind of runs off see once again they're not spoon feeding it to us this no. is this they're hinting at what's happening uh they aren't just saying it outright i, yeah. I, I always appreciate that and it's like, oh, are you crying? You know, he saw that he yeah, was tearing yeah. up and, and Edgar had to kind of leave the scene. So then on screen again, we get the black with the spotlight on the character. Edgar's twin brother who traded the throne for his own freedom. Now, I thought it was interesting that it said he yeah. traded the throne. That mm. actually that makes me wonder if he might be the older of the two twins. So Sabin mm, was actually the one who was okay. supposed to be king, but he decided right. not to do it. Well, huh. actually, now that I say that, there is a scene that comes up later that totally explains this. Yes, uh, but they, I, yeah. Okay. This is fun. Um, the girls at the castle all seem pretty sick of Edgar always hitting yep. on them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So he's like, I'm a king. And he's got his little like, no, no, no. Like his little yep. uh, little animation. That's animation. He's just a, a flirty kind of guy. Yep. Um, you go and talk to the girls uh, and they're just like, has he hit on you yet? And they're talking to Tara and it's really funny. But you also meet, you go to... Uh, a nursery, I guess, where yes. there is a woman named matron. Well, probably not named matron, but there is a matron there. Um, and there's a bunch of kids around and she gives us some story of Edgar and Sabin as well. Yep. Uh, but there's a young girl there, this like really little girl running around. And if you talk to her, it, she reveals that Edgar um, is hitting on her too. <laughs> yeah. She, well, she's like six or something. No. And she says that Edgar says that he'll marry me when I grow up. So basically. the way that I looked at this is, um, well, like little girls will often kind of, you know, play at like, you know, uh, thinking about growing up and getting married yes. and this sort of thing. And, yes. and, and I, I even remember I had a friend next door when I was really little, I was probably five years old. And this girl asked me you know, will you marry me when I get older? I, I've, yeah. Yeah, I've I'm sure a times. lot of people have had similar experience, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, the way I kind of read this is like, Edgar's really good with kids. And so when this girl asked yes. him to marry her, he was like, like, sure, when, when you get older, older yeah, yeah. like, yes, you know, like to, you know, just, yes. you know, uh, playing with her kind of a thing. I'm right? not reading in that he's a pedophile. That he's actually, <laughs> yeah. Because he says when you're older. So it's like, okay, he's not like yeah. that. But... In light of um, the context of all every woman that you meet in the castle is just like, hey, has Edgar hit on you yet? And then you finally meet like a little kid and she, it turns out he's promising to marry her too. And it's yeah, like, right. it's just really funny. I actually right. thought it was really clever. Yeah. And I thought it was a really funny, uh, fun it's sweet. It's sweet. play on his character. Um, okay. So I think we're going to stop right there when, as Kefka comes into play. Um, and, and we'll kind of continue on from there next time. I, I did not expect we would go on... Uh, quite this long, um, but there was kind of a lot to get through there. So it's just going to change a little bit where I think we should play up to for next okay. time. Uh, we're not going to be able to probably get quite as far. So let me take a look at this real quick and decide. Okay. So here's what I've decided uh, based on how much we have to cover next week. Let's say that we'll play up to the end of the phantom train sequence hmm. for next time. So that's where you should play up to and prepare for, uh, for next week. So, Anyway, thank you for joining us, everybody. Hopefully, this is enjoyable so far. 
Uh, I always end up thinking we'll do this many, and then it turns out to be more. Uh, we'll, we'll see if that ends up being the case for this as well. But uh, Phantom Train for next time. Till then, peace out. <laughs>